Welcome and welcome, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Health News Around the World. You are about to listen to the live clip from our uh, live episode every Sunday, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. This one is from December 19th. It discusses the most up-to-date research on Omicron, as well as the perspective of several renowned physicians. It is entirely live, and you will see the back and forth between the audience and the physicians, as well as scientists on stage. So I hope you find this useful, insightful. If you have any comments, please do let us know. And I can almost promise you, going forward, these podcast episodes are going to become much more interactive, much more um, fine-tuned. But in the meantime, still hope you enjoy. So here it is, the second episode. You know, the the first story I wanted to jump into, so as, uh, and Cal, I don't know if you've uh, seen our style, but we usually try to uh, go after non-COVID things, because once you start talking COVID, that's all you talk about. Uh, and so we're going to start with non-COVID topics, some of whom, some of which are so important. And again, our replays are on. So if you, you know, if people have to come in and out or other people uh, can hear this after, but this is an important story that I kind of mentioned yesterday that we really wanted to go deep into, uh, which was uh, uh, around Oracle and their their potential acquisition of Cerner. So what's interesting is afterwards, I saw a back channel message just to get everybody level set. Oracle is now in talks of buying Cerner. If you have been keeping attention, Cerner just got the the, the head of Google Health, left Google Health. In fact, left Google Health in shambles uh, and went on to go to Cerner. Cerner is well regarded as one of the most old school, crappy experience medical records. There has been many a doctor that, that just absolutely hates Cerner. If you've ever seen it, it looks like it's, uh, you know, uh, it, it might as well be, you know, uh, UI from 1995. It's well, like, hey, Turner, wait till they see Oracle. <laughs> exactly. And now Oracle, in the largest M&A that Oracle has ever done, is buying Cerner. Now, what, what, if people don't know what Oracle's strength is, it's enterprise cloud infrastructure. And it is in terms of database management, backend management. And really, I would see them as more of an infrastructure company and an enterprise cloud company than anything else. But what's interesting about this acquisition is through this acquisition, they get access to all of this medical record data. And, you know, uh, uh, and I got a back channel and Francine, you know, thank you for sharing that. I, you know, my contention was that this is more of a play with Microsoft who is now working on, uh, who just made the largest investment uh, in Truveda in the last round and uh, was uh, it has been really interested in taking these backend infrastructure databases, de-identifying the data, and then making it useful in good ways, I think. I think Microsoft has good, good intentions here. And Francine informed me, and by the way, Francine, I have contradictory information. That's why I'm bringing it up. That, and oh. I know that, that, yeah, I have very contradictory information, actually. Uh, and from somebody that I really trust, I tried to ping him in. Um, he is... Uh, I, I will let him introduce himself. Is, but, your, uh, is your contradictory information someone who worked on one of the deals? Uh, it's from somebody who's really high up at Cerner. <laughs> and oh, uh, he is, that's yeah. That's really so, interesting because my daughter is high up at Oracle. And exactly. one, of the, one of the reasons why I had a back channel everything 
is because she really doesn't want me, you know, saying things <laughs> to people. But last night I had um, I had the room on. Um, well, it was last night my time. I had the room on, and she was listening. And she was like, Jesus Christ, Mom, why do you even listen to that? These people don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, yeah. So, so the, the, the contradictory information, just to kind of get everybody on the same page, because not everybody was here yesterday, was around the fact that Oracle now ha has uh, an agreement uh, with Microsoft, which, again, I just told you guys that Truveda actually – is uh, now uh, not only in Truveda as a company that all these health systems in America bought, uh, that they took all the data that they had on their patients and using a loophole, uh, which is the quote unquote consent process, media consent is what they call it. They actually de-identified that data and sold patient data to this data company who then is selling that data to all the big tech companies. It's called Truveda. It is, in my opinion, one of the worst things because when you're sitting at the doctor's office and you're sitting in the waiting room and they have you sign all those different consent forms in the US, how many of you knew that they could actually sell your data without giving you a single cent? Very few. So is it truly informed consent? Not really. And so the, the, the point here is that Microsoft was in that business. I still think that Microsoft is not really trying to use that information for, for, for any nefarious reasons, but still it does not change the fact that patients don't really know what's going on. So how does this fit with Oracle and Cerner? If Cerner was just uh, hosting their, uh, their records on a server, you can't access their information. That's, there's a bunch of HIPAA things around that, and I can kind of, kind of go into details with that. But if a tech company owns the entire medical record, because of the way that these medical record companies are building something called clinical decision support, they can actually get access to the medical record data directly. And Oracle is very good at packaging that information and taking that information and making it usable. That's actually like what Oracle's like, secret sauce with a bunch of different information is, right? Like that's what we use them in normal infrastructure. And so what I heard was the reason why they're giving a 50% bump to a company that has not had a good product in like 15 years is because they get access to that data. And now with the strategic alliance with Microsoft, what I did here, and this is an important point, is that their current alliance with Microsoft is only about sharing cloud infrastructure. But part of this acquisition is that they want to monetize the medical record data. And that is the difference. So Francine, we both could be right and we both could be wrong. <laughs> and so- I, uh, I know, that's really funny. My daughter isn't home now, but I, <laughs> when she comes back, I'll, I'll ask I, I would love, and you know, again, she, she doesn't have to speak on the record. I'm just very, very curious about this whole acquisition because why, oh, why would Oracle buy this? Can someone Cerner, give me a sense of- Cerner is a failed product that the VA is transitioning to. That's huge access and a, and a pain in the butt for the rest of us. What, Cerner? Well, yeah. Sorry, uh, Eric, can huge, you clarify The a huge bit? electronic, um, the modernization um, uh, process for the VA, the VA is transitioning to Cerner. That's what's been making the news that's not gone well. Um, 
in and their- yet and yet Oracle's buying Cerner, <laughs> even though Cerner's having these implementation challenges. I, I I did hear about that. Yeah. Yeah, but also if I mean it, it is still going forward, right? Like we are so we are set to transition late in 2022 at my facility, and we have had trainings already, um, and it's been painful at, at already, um, but. But maybe what it, they want is access to, I mean, imagine the access to, the, it's VA and DOD that Cerner, I mean, Cerner is already live in many DOD sites. Um, and so, I mean, that would be huge access, millions of records. Yeah, hey, Donna, but, uh, but I agree see, with you. Oh, go ahead, Francis. Okay. But see, they don't, you know, for Oracle to make money off of Cerner, they don't necessarily need access to the data just to the installed base. Because one of the things Oracle Cloud is trying to do is move legacy companies to the cloud. They, they, legacy companies that need a big installed base. And, you know, from, again, from what I know, and I don't know everything, um, Oracle shut down it's data exchange. It used to be data exchange and all of its uh, marketing data services because of GDPR. And they made a big deal about it and they, and they, um, they said they, they weren't going to do it. And my daughter worked with the European Commission on it and, you know, helped formulate all those rules. And is the lawyer, you know, and she's all she's on the <laughs> she's on the ethics and security committee. I mean, who knows? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I yeah. completely so understand Donna your point here. So, go ahead, Chandler. Yeah, so just to kind of put things in perspective, you know, um, you know, as physicians, uh, all of us use electronic medical records. Um, I actually went to IU for residency and 10, 12 years ago, we were used Cerner. And today, medical records, every physician in America uses uh, electronic medical records. And, and you rank the electronic medical records right now in terms of market share. And so right now, Epic owns like a 31 to 35% market share. Um, Cerner's up there in the 25 to 27% range. And then Meditech is around 10 to 15%. So the barrier entry for electronic medical records is pretty much impossible now. And so you have the top three, it's kind of like Coke and Pepsi. And so they have the market share. And most importantly, it's about the hospital relationships. So Epic's got 1700 hospitals aligned with Epic. And you have about 13 hospital, 1300 hospitals aligned with Cerner. So these are the two big boys right now in terms of market share. But it's very interesting, like you mentioned, Donish. I think these two are going to take off. It's going to be about relationships. So really quickly, the reason why this is interesting is six months ago, their value valuation was twenty billion. David Feinberg joins. Six months later, they're getting acquired for thirty billion. So let me just say. Cal, you've been an executive before. Have you ever seen that kind of a change <laughs> in six months? I have, this is like unheard of. And so uh, I'm sure his contract has accelerated, uh, you know, accelerated uh, vesting and a lot of other things, but holy moly, I've never heard of something like this. And so 
It's just a fascinating yeah, I mean, situation. As far as uh, innovation goes, which is like another angle here, or how, how fast they're going to move for uh, the kind of things that you guys have been talking about and the, and the, and the innovation needed in healthcare. I mean, you know, two drunks don't make a stable person, right? Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, so I, I just don't know. I mean, I think the valuation stuff is interesting. There's, we have a real, real market uh, uh, dysfunction right now in terms of valuations overall anyway. All kinds of all kinds of challenges there, uh, of understanding how, what things are really worth. But um, but beyond that, yeah, it does seem a very very odd, Danish. There's there's clearly, and 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 obviously Dr. Francine has some back channel stuff, and you guys do. But there's clearly some underlying stories here that'll come out later on in terms of this acquisition. Um, it, it's just bizarre, and also the timing of it. You know, it's all all interesting. Oracle regularly buys what market share. I mean, how my daughter got there, and they really doesn't they really don't care what they're buying. You know, they buy like they bought my daughter's company, which was called Taleo. It was a talent management uh, software because they weren't doing too well in that, and they wanted they wanted more market share. And my daughter did say that, Oracle was in an entire healthcare initiative, and that they had they bought something else in healthcare, which I I don't remember what it was. But you know, it it just strikes me that there is nowhere else for enterprise providers to go that's going to be any faster growing in the next you know foreseeable future than healthcare because the population is aging and most healthcare companies are behind the power curve, you know, and, uh, and we're in a pandemic. <laughs> oh, yeah. I won't mention it because we're not. No, you, can, you can't use the P word. Sorry. Uh, but uh, until, until an hour from now, just kidding. Uh, we can totally talk about it. And by the way, uh, uh, Dr. Rearson's actually entered the room. So I'm just going to bring her up. Uh, Angela, you don't have to uh, jump into everything right now. We're going to jump into the COVID stuff in a little bit. I just uh, sent you, I, you know, I, we just pinged her into the room and, and really happy that she's here. Um, oh, she can't join right now. That's okay. So uh, hopefully uh, we can hear from her before the end of the, uh, the show. And again, just to remind everybody that she's going to be talking about the results from her fluvoxamine study, but more importantly, broadly around the role of these new medications in our, as we move forward through the pandemic. Okay, so- Wait, Donish, uh, I'm reading this article. Have they like kind of agreed already to do this acquisition or is oh, this still like happen. in talks? Yeah, so the way it works, uh, and, and maybe Cal can give some color on this, but um, or others that have been involved in these types of acquisitions, the, the, the first uh, stone has been thrown. <laughs> the the fir first, uh, you know, essentially what they're saying is, hey, we have, and they probably, have entered into a, uh, an LOI agreement around this acquisition. They wanted the world to know uh, this does not just get leaked. Uh, this was clearly a planned press release. And so, uh, if anybody wants to uh, talk about this experience, you know, this kind of stuff, I'm happy to hear it. But usually, my, my only, my only uh, thing on that, Donna, it's a more of a question is. Um, because uh, you understand the industry and people here understand this particular industry uh, better than I do. But the, you know, are they, the, there's a possibility that they're, they're fishing for other people, you, you know, uh, to get involved here. Well, certainly not Oracle, but, but 
the target is, is looking to you know get uh, other people involved here and and uh, and oh, get you know a different price. So I I don't know, but I don't understand this industry and how easy it is for another. You know, I don't know what who another potential player would be. It might be some of the big players, right? The big I, tech companies. I was, think, I I was thinking about I how Google, Amazon are, uh, you know, really adamant in their plans of expanding into healthcare industry and how this acquisition may connect with them and their desire to acquire all the cloud computing data of different patient populations, especially VA that hold a lot of data on certain specific uh, uh, you know, health conditions and how these companies may now uh, connect with each other uh, in terms of how Google and Amazon would need this kind of cloud computing data from healthcare industry in the future as they expand it. Hey, so that's, um, that's so a very Suzanne. strong point. I, I actually know about this a lot um, because I have, I, I negotiated on behalf of Oracle no, sorry, I negotiated on behalf of Accenture. Um, we tried to do a deal with Oracle to get their cloud for the project that I had been working on. And Oracle is notorious for being horrendous with negotiations. Um, and so much so that um, when I was with Accenture, we, we dropped Oracle and we moved over to AWS, which happened in many, many cases. Um, with the current company I'm with, um, uh, we run CalHERS, which is the health um, exchange and benefit uh, for California. Um, and when they went to the cloud, we did not use Oracle. So Oracle is in deep doo-doo right now because of their bad negotiations um, with getting um, into the healthcare industry. And as someone just previously mentioned, how they will how they plan on rectifying this is to acquire a company that has valuable information um, and that will they'll they'll buy their way into the health exchange community rather than um, negotiating contracts with the big companies that run the systems and then sharing. Thanks, Suzanne. One thing I was going to mention, uh, and John, I would love to and hear that, your thoughts I'll after. And I'll co-sign that, Suzanne. Yeah. And so I uh, wanted to, so get, let's get level set, okay? Uh, because we have a lot of experts on the stage and a lot of experts in the audience, but some people that are here, uh, and we love everybody at every level, but some people that are here don't know about the moves of big tech into healthcare. And this is the tech news around the world, health news around the world room. Uh, and by the way, if you want to uh, in improve your IQ, uh, maybe uh, improve your hairline, you need to hit tech news around the world above me and, and, and come on down. Uh, but I was gonna say that let's, walk, let's level set, okay? We just talked about Oracle. Oracle has been uh, not so successful in healthcare. And I can talk about many, many reasons why. Uh, but they clearly see themselves playing now, apparently, the medical record game. It's going to be fascinating to watch. When you look at the other big tech players, Microsoft is taking an amazing, what I would say, a top-notch strategy, which is we are already serving the back office infrastructure. We are already serving the unified communications infrastructure. We are already being used by all these health systems for non-healthcare. Let's, let's have unification of platform and now using Microsoft Teams for telehealth visits and, 
and uh, and uh, Microsoft Teams for care coordination and uh, uh, you know uh, internal communication and all of these other things. They're saying we're going to play the enterprise game, and I think they're doing a good job. They're also betting very heavily into my uh, uh, the uh, into Azure and AI. I think the AI side is still yet to be seen, really. Uh, from Microsoft in terms of that that play, but they really are saying, "Hey, you're already using us for Teams. Remember in the pandemic how we we had your back. Now use us for our cloud." So that's been Microsoft's game. Apple, which is uh, the one that I would say I I had the most hopes for, and in my opinion has has not entered healthcare, but has done an incredible job in health and consumer health. Uh, you know, really their play has been, "Look, we're going to stay away from." the way that healthcare is delivered today. We're not gonna be able to get it. It's too many players. We don't like this game. We like our approach. We're gonna come in and we're gonna start affecting uh, health by going directly to consumer or the disintermediation strategy. That's what Apple is doing. We'll see how that ends up. I honestly don't think that it's gonna be incredibly successful, but again, that's just a personal opinion. Then Google, Google has double triple, quadruple down on Google Cloud. The number of people that I know that are high up in amazing institutions, the most forward-thinking institutions, think Mayo Clinic, think Cleveland Clinic. You can Google this. They're all using Google Cloud now because Google Cloud has completely built an entire FHIR or Fire API infrastructure, allowing all of these health systems to be incredibly interoperable across every single uh, EMR. It's fascinating. So Google Cloud has double, triple, quadruple down on the, the cloud infrastructure. And I think they're doing a better job, in my opinion, than Microsoft. But again, business models matter. Tech is great, but business models matter. Then uh, the, the, the one that I am most impressed with has been Amazon. People wrote Amazon off. Everybody said Amazon is not going to win. And you know what happened? Amazon came back with a vengeance. They said, hey, we tested. Haven didn't work, not because we didn't have a good thesis, but because there wasn't, uh, it's hard to align three different institutions. So you know what? We're gonna go back and we're gonna go after care delivery. And they went full stack healthcare. I can tell you right now, again, I'm biased. My company is full stack healthcare. So I will say that disclaimer, but I believe that full, the full stack approach that Amazon's taking is going to go is going to go bonkers and what they're doing is genius they're going after employers who is one of the largest employers in the world amazon they said we're going to be our own health system you know you know uh, who went after employers kaiser well, how does kaiser exist they went after employers building a health plan slash health system around employers is clearly the way to go and amazon is killing it the last one I'm going hey, to Hey, Donish, hey, Donish, the, uh, did you see, just to add to that thing, did you see, and I was uh, interested in your perspective on this because we haven't chatted for a while, the, uh, uh, the head of Prime that they put in charge of uh, oh, yeah. healthcare, which I mean, like Prime is on fire. Like Prime, I've been watching Prime ever since my Best Buy days even, right? Like way, like just watching Prime is just the ultimate genius of how they built this connection with consumers and just added more and more services. And it's like this subscription model that's just on fire. If they bring an element of that thinking and execution mostly, all of this is about execution, right? That's, it's about really, really good execution and, uh, and, and operations. And so um, 
Yeah. I was, did you see that? It was kind of interesting. Oh my God. It's so interesting because you know what people are saying the signals? Amazon care is entering into value-based care. That to me is a signal. Prime is subscription, right? With a subscription, you get access. So what we're seeing is if you look at Amazon's current model, they have a per uh, member per month model already in their healthcare platform. This dude knows how to execute on that and then getting a platform. What I think is going to happen, and, and mark my words, what Amazon is doing is what they've always done. Remember how Amazon used to be only books and they were a reseller of books. So they would go, they would purchase the books at risk and then sell them on their website. And they said, we're going to show to the world that you can sell books on Amazon. Then what they did was they said, hey, we're going to become a platform for any publisher to sell books. So they, they sold the books themselves, full stack. Then they said, we're going to become a platform for selling books. And then they said, we're going to become a platform for selling everything. Now replace books with primary care. <laughs> they said, we're going we're gonna to do full stack primary care. Then I, I believe this very strongly, Cal. They're going to say, hey, now you can use your primary care system. You can use Amazon's infrastructure to sell primary care. And then ultimately, any care delivery will be able to be delivered through Amazon's platform. They already own AWS. They already own the infrastructure. They're just building the infrastructure so they can sell it to others over, over time. So I'm so excited about this. And by the way, it will come with your Amazon Prime membership. Mark my words, Amazon Prime membership will come with healthcare. Can you imagine? <laughs> so one question on connecting the dots back to the earlier uh, headline around uh, Oracle, right? So question to you and uh, Prerak and anyone else that understands this industry. My question in my head is, so do they, would they be somebody that needs the company that uh, uh, Oracle's buying or that, that kind of database? Or is that, is that something that gets disrupted in that, right? It's kind of old tech or something. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just I mean, a, just a uh, question. I can't. I can't see uh, Amazon using Cerner. That would be nuts for any of the doctors that have ever used it. They're going to be like, "There's no way they're going to do that." <laughs> uh, they, they probably are going to use something a little bit more. Uh, I, I actually think I know what they're going to use, but I can't say it because I don't know if it's public. But it's it's going to be one of the new sort of uh, API based. Uh, uh, EHRs, because again, what's happening, what you're going to continue to see is people want to put their own wrappers around existing EHRs and Cerner doesn't even allow you to do that. None of them really do. And I think, you know, people want to own the patient experience and the doctor experience and the EHR, they just want it to be at the core because the medical record system, the way it's set up today in the US and around the world really is that it's more of a billing system than it is a patient care delivery system. And I think Amazon will want to own its own infrastructure, but we'll see. But to kind of, uh, thank you, Cal, for bringing us back. The last one I was going to mention was Best Buy, actually. I think Best Buy is going to be the winner in remote patient monitoring, and we can kind of leave it at that. I actually think that they have gone all in on remote patient monitoring. And for people that don't know what that is, it's Apple, but a little bit further. So Apple's doing consumer patient monitoring. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but that's what, how I think about it. Uh, and I think what you're going to see is, you will never buy your CPAP from some random DME, durable medical equipment provider. You're going to get it from Best Buy because the Geek Squad's going to come to your house, set it up, and make sure that it's connected to your medical record. That's what I'm so excited about. I think 
the durable medical equipment business is going to be taken over by Best Buy. So just wanted to get everybody level set. So now going back to Oracle and Microsoft and all of this, we understand the players. I am, I, you know, people keep saying that the tech companies have failed in healthcare. What people don't realize is just because you don't see them doesn't mean they aren't there. <laughs> and I think it's easy to say that, but I wanted to give John a chance to, to talk a little bit about this, but you know, and Aram, if you had a comment, but John, go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think you covered the waterfront pretty well. And just a couple points to layer on um, big tech, whether IBM uh, in the earliest days or uh, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, um, they've all uh, built up huge um, treasure chests um, for investment. And they're looking for verticals that have a lot of friction to take the friction out because that's how they monetize tech uplifts is getting friction out of systems. And healthcare uh, has probably as much or more friction than any other vertical out there. And part of that uh, is a unintended consequence of clumsy regulation, old regulation, um, well-intended but uh, perversely designed uh, regulation. And the other component of friction is that the human experience, which is what healthcare seeks to optimize, um, is so extremely complex and extremely variable from person to person. And so uh, most of these big tech companies, Oracle included, uh, this is not their first rodeo. This is not their second rodeo. This is not their third rodeo. This is like their fourth or fifth generation of attempts to get in. And historically, what they've tried to do is make kind of narrow slice plays. So they thought, you know, we can carve out this part of healthcare. Or we can carve out that part of healthcare, whether it's, you know, search uh, for health information, whether it's decision support, uh, whether it's virtual care, remote patient monitoring, AI, um, you know, pick, pick a tech sector and do the uh, intersection with healthcare, and there's always a big intersection with everything out there, CRM. Um, and so they've tried this uh, sort of piecemeal business model approach and found it to be very, very treacherous and much more complex than they knew. And a lot of the problem is if you look historically, um, all of these big tech companies have hired bright people, often celebrities from the healthcare field, um, but not necessarily those um, who understand the complexity of the integration of uh, first and foremost, understanding the business you're in, and that is, uh, you know, uh, helping uh, people have a better life experience by preventing or treating uh, what ails them. Uh, that is way more complex than any other vertical ever possibly could be. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, there's, there's a, a big cemetery uh, full of tombstones of failed efforts from big tech to go into healthcare. And so there will remain some plays that are very um, compartmentalized within tech that succeed in healthcare. But what you described about what Amazon is going after is the full stack um, is fundamentally um, where the intersection of tech, healthcare, and most importantly, value-based care resides. And value-based care 
is fundamentally about how do we provide the greatest value to a community with the resources available um, rather than a per-click, per-procedure, fee-for-service uh, kind of model. And we're in this historic transition from uh, fairly perversely incentivized fee-for-service model uh, that originated you know, back in the late 60s and early 70s um, with well-intentioned legislation that led to all these perverse incentives. It just hasn't worked very well. Uh, and so we're in this huge transition. And because we're in transition, the best timing for uh, arbitrage uh, in a good way um, is when there's disruption uh, native to the industry. So healthcare is in a native disruption, even tech aside. And so tech has this huge opportunity to leverage this, this disruption in the transition from fee-for-service to value-based care. But it's very, very hard to create a business model in a siloed service or application that has legs in both the old fee-for-service model and in the new value-based care model. Very treacherous. So going into a, an, an all-in, at-risk, value-based care kind of model where you look at outcomes and you look at cost and say, what did we get for our money and how did we improve the health of a community? It's very, very hard to make that play from a siloed approach within the tech space trying to you know find a home in healthcare so um i agree with you danish i don't know who the ultimate winners are going to be in in the, the different elements but to the extent that they're taking a broader view and less of a sub-sector tech view of how do i claim a slice of healthcare by reducing friction in this slice of healthcare how do I improve end-to-end -end service, end-to-end -end outcomes, end-to-end -end quality, end-to-end -end satisfaction, and end-to-end -end lowering costs? Um, that's where the big moves are going to happen, and the timing is now. And so I don't know how this thing with Oracle is going to play out. I don't know how any of the, um, the major tech companies are going to end up in the uh, new equilibrium that comes at a combination of tech-enabled uplift towards value-based care. But I think it's going to much more reflect a better understanding of who they need to be hiring to be their leaders and visionaries and strategists to do what needs to be done in order to achieve that value-based uh, care goal. Um, because uh, the, the, all of the tombstones in the big tech cemetery in healthcare um, are failures to really understand healthcare. It wasn't that they were failed business models so much. It wasn't that they were failed approaches. It wasn't they didn't have smart people. So they really didn't understand the business they were trying to enter. That you know, tech is 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 pretty complicated in and of itself. Um, and every vertical has its complications, but there's nothing as complex as healthcare. And so I think they're finally, uh, you know, doing some evidence-based analysis of why did they fail in the past over and over and over across different companies. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish in two seconds. And so I, I believe that the next five years is gonna define the big winners and the big losers because there's an awareness, there's a disruptive moment, and there's an entry point for getting friction out of the system. I'm done. So I wanted to respond to that, but Aram, I know you're waiting. Uh, Matt had a direct response to what you were saying, I believe, uh, but uh, to, to set Matt up, one question I have, Matt, around this, is it because they didn't understand the complexity of healthcare? or 
is it does it have more to do with incumbents because we've seen in fintech which i don't know if you all know but it's highly regulated we've seen tech companies come in and win and so it is fascinating about what what, what the actual reason here is right matt is Matt still there? If not, no, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Sorry, joined in late, but uh, thanks for like catching me up on the <laughs> topic du jour. And a lot, yeah, a lot of moves this week too. Um, I mean, the biggest thing, yeah, the, the business. I think I, this is what I texted to you. The business of healthcare isn't about making money. The business of healthcare is still a business, right? It, it happens to involve people. Like that. That's the truth of it. Um, and I think the biggest difference to John's point, though, is like there's all of the tech plays have been extractive, right? Like you're just like, you're making money because of the complexity of healthcare. Um, uh, because like we've made it like an overregulated it, et cetera, to make it so complex that you need all these extra tools. Um, but none of it has actually trickled down to the patient and actually making it better. We've just kind of like tried to iron out the inefficiencies that we created for ourselves. Um, so anyway, that's like my initial take is it is about helping people, but like the business of healthcare is not actually about yeah, I don't think it is either. Aram, did you have a, a thought on Well, uh, since uh, I was thinking at the beginning um, of this article share, uh, what could be uh, the future move and where the healthcare industry is heading. Uh, so uh, the Amazon and Google healthcare plan um, expansion came to my mind, but another thing popped up. Uh, you know, I was thinking about the article, I think it was a month ago I read about it, uh, the NVIDIA, the chip company, uh, which is like really have extensive experience, is investing in metaverse, AR and VR. And uh, I think the AR and VR related uh, dual reality, mixed reality experience is moving in that field where Facebook and other companies have developed um, uh, this uh, kind of modality. And that kind of experience, that kind of data uh, can be combined with the healthcare industry and the patient care diagnosis um, uh, and remote monitoring uh, could uh, maybe possibly uh, shift into the AR, VR, uh, metaverse area. That means Facebook and all companies who are um, maybe eyeing that industry, that uh, space uh, would be uh, contacting people who own uh, the medical records and data from um, not only VA, but other hospitals, um, uh, you know, medical records, uh, because to develop that technology, to train your AI um, and all of that, that data would be extremely helpful. So uh, they can uh, right now maybe looking into that space. That's why they are trying to acquire all this data to sell it off if, in future, to not only to NVIDIA, but also, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon. I mean, the possibilities are endless because I believe healthcare is moving into AI. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, I, you know, I will say. The Danish girlfriend, I'll jump in. No, no. Uh, why don't we hear from you? I've been talking a lot today. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, so I was going to say, I found it interesting that they mentioned the Halo. So I remember when it went live last year, they had a pretty strong uh, voice component to it and, and being on social audio and clubhouse uh, we did a room on it and talking about kind of sentiment analysis and emotional uh, working out kind of people's emotional states so it seems like this halo view device they have kind of um almost it's still present but they've they've not really enhanced the feature of, of voice analysis and it's interesting to think why that might be uh, i think there's a few privacy issues there as well but with the halo they seem to be also expanding into nutrition etc so 
looking at kind of the companies that kind of I've looked at with Eight Sleep, etc., it seems like wellness seems to be the way where consumer companies expand into healthcare, and then they start to get you know physicians on board and start to get FDA clearances. And I know Whoop is looking that that way as well. So I think the step into healthcare from one side is always getting that consumer data, making it a regular device or an app that the majority of people are using before they kind of are ill and they're using it as healthy people and then these companies gather all that data and then they start to look at okay how do we look at more kind of clinical states so i find that pretty interesting how uh, the halo device the beta tried tested it for six months and now they've kind of released this view version so that's pretty much in the article so i think it's just oh that's fascinating and by the way that's an interesting article uh if people have interesting articles to share just tweet it to us at health news ch that is the twitter account for this room and uh you it's know in my, uh, it's in my bio it's in it's in Prerac's bio. So, uh, Prerac, I think we've covered it. Does anybody else have a last word before we move on? I just also remember the Microsoft Mesh Hello Portation. I read about that also a few months ago. I'm going to share uh, an article. I think I read it a month ago. That's where all these thoughts are coming from. I'm going to share that article. That was. Thanks, Aram. So, the next article is going to be very very different. Uh, <laughs> It's it's the the uh, it, it's it's a it's a topic that is going to be a little charged. So I'm just if if people get a little triggered by this, just let us know and we can kind of calm down on it. But uh, everybody's going to be respectful on stage, hopefully. But this is around uh, the Sackler family uh, and what has occurred with the opioid crisis and how it is being shared. So if you can pin that at the top, Prerac. Um, so as people may or may not know, uh, the Sackler family has uh, a, uh, has a uh, they were the owners of Purdue Pharma, and they were the, that was the company that made and promoted OxyContin. And uh, what ended up happening was the Sackler family was obviously named in the case, uh, and they were able to escape civil liability uh, because they were able to do a multi-billion-dollar bankruptcy settlement here in the U.S. And a judge, uh, uh, Robert Drain, approved that plan in September. But uh, but then on Thursday, uh, Judge Colleen McMahon uh, she reversed that settlement. And it's actually led, though, the controversy over this is if families are able to get paid for their loss, and if, you know, is it constitutional for us to be able to reverse these types of settlements because of the human impact they've had? And I think what's interesting has been how people have actually come in saying, look, you know, uh, this could sit in court for years. And it has sat in court for years. And now they finally came to a settlement that was actually agreeable to the families, and the, the judge actually reversed that settlement. Any thoughts on this? I wanted to make sure that people have a chance to talk about this and about the Sackler family. This is absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah Dr. Donish, just on the bankruptcy side, because I did a lot of bankruptcy work, you know, many, you know, for when I started my career on Wall Street, I did a lot of um, corporate bankruptcies and, you know, distressed debt. So this is basically not a decision based on any of the issues that everyone else is, I'll let everybody else talk about the, those issues that you talked about. This is strictly a bankruptcy law um, issue, really, as to whether um, 
you can, you know, you know, avoid, you know, get this kind of protection without the Sackler family itself filing for bankruptcy. Had the Sackler family itself filed for bankruptcy, then they probably would have just lumped the two bankruptcies, the corporate bankruptcy, maybe in their personal bankruptcy um, together in what's called a, a substantive consolidation. And then they would have done whatever settlement. And then they would have had, you know, when they would have been released from their liabilities. And let's say, they, I think they put they, their original agreement was they, they were going to put a $4 billion or whatever it is, okay? They could have done something like that. Okay, had they filed for bank the, personally for bankruptcy, the fact that they didn't file for personal bankruptcy, but are getting the type of protection you would normally come out with, you know, from a you know from a you know bankruptcy settlement if you were in bankruptcy, that's that's the issue here. So I just wanted to make that point. There's a lot of technical bankruptcy stuff, and when you say one judge reversed the other one, I was trying to look up. I, I didn't have a chance to look at it. Was it an appeals court judge that overruled the district judge or an appeals court judge that maybe overruled the bankruptcy judge? A bankruptcy judge, by the way, typically is just a district court judge. So I, I'm, I'm curious of whether that was an appeals judge, how it got to a second uh, um, a second judge, or there's maybe two different judges involved. There might be a bankruptcy judge involved and a district court judge um, that's not part of the bankruptcy or something. So I mean that 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 could have also you know um, you know played played into it. But oh, um, this is this gets very complicated, Ken. Yeah. Thank you for bringing it up. So uh, if you look at the article, uh, Robert Drain, who approved the plan in September, was able to do so because of a loophole uh, that the Sackler uh, that the Purdue Pharma Company's lawyers were able to find. They employed a loophole a venue shopping loophole to land in his court. So, uh, so it was in a bankruptcy court and then it went up to the U.S. District Court, which then reversed it. So uh, thank you for clarifying on that. And what's interesting about this is around the politics of it. And in late 2020, uh, as the Trump administration was on its way out, Purdue pled guilty in New York, New Jersey court to defrauding federal health agencies and violating anti-kickback laws. Justice made a huge to-do about it, and an $8.3 billion fine, but the company was already in bankruptcy. <laughs> so they couldn't actually pursue that money. We also need to distinguish between the company and the Sacklers themselves, right? They, the Sacklers, also technically walked away with still billions into their name. The company itself was allowed to go bankrupt and I think the other stipulation behind all of this is that they assume like no personal liability ultimately, which is what this like um, this this article is kind of hitting at. So it's interesting to your point. So the question that I have is that should they be held personally liable, uh, and and how does that even work, Suzanne? I mean, uh, I know this is not your area of law, but it would be fascinating to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, of course, the 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 the, the Sackler family was. Uh, was clearly involved in a lot of this decision making. Um, and so the question really becomes, how do we, what do we do here? Because if they walk away without, without a scratch, I, I can't even imagine how people would react. And clearly they're connected enough that they were able to do this. Yeah, so I, I have to tell you, I haven't read up on this article. I was reading it as I heard my name, Suzanne. Um, <laughs> so I, I'd like to read the article a little bit more. Yeah, go I ahead. Ken has a definite point regarding the different district court judge versus the bankruptcy judge. 
Um, I mean, personally, you know, as I was reading the article, my my uh, heart kind of sunk to my stomach, then sunk and gave me an instant instant stomach ache. To be honest, um, it's a really sad situation. Um, so yeah, I I need to read it a little bit more. But you know, when when you talk about the law, the law is is very clear and concise. Um, you know issue, rule, analysis, conclusion, there's no, you get to put in, um, you know, opinion or, or emotion. It's very just straightforward. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if, if there was a jury, I would appear that there should have been a jury if there was a trial. Um, just a lot of things that come into play. So let me look look at the article. Well, you you wouldn't have a jury in a bankruptcy situation. So no, what this if it was negotiated other, as part of a bankrupt what? If it had gone to the district court, you you would have. But you, you, yeah, but I think the district court only ruled the district court only ruled on the legal technicality of whether or not um, you know the the the, the Sacklers could be shielded as part of a bankruptcy process that they personally were not part of. Right, because they did not file for personal bankruptcy, so the, 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 I think the the legal the legal decision had to do with where does this judge get off, giving them protection from civil law, the first judge, from civil lawsuits, be, because he's presiding over a bankruptcy situation that they're not even a party to, technically, right? So th- that's why I said there's a, there's a technical bankruptcy issue. Now, in terms of the personal liability, it is hard to to break the corporate veil um, on, on things. And that's why people have corporations to protect them from personal liability. However, yeah, and this is right. not going to be- It's called piercing the corporate they, veil. Right, yes. Yep. Okay, H- however, however, in this case, and this is not going to, I know a lot of people want to, you know, some sort of uh, settlement or some sort of decision to help all the other people. There's a, there's a social aspect to this discussion. I'm going to let everybody else take. But um, as, as no, 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 because there's plenty of people on stage. I just want to d- deal with the, some of the technicalities. The, the Sacklers sent a lot of the mo- took money out of the country, okay, and that's an issue in this case. And it's something called um, um, uh, for, uh, fraudulent conveyance, okay. Another th- difficult thing that to prove, by the way. But I think that's why this thing may drag on for years. If the Sacklers took money out of the entity, particularly if they moved it out of the country, beyond the reach of creditors, okay, um, you know, that's going to become, an, you know, uh, you know, another issue, um, because th- then it makes it a little bit easier to maybe, you know, break the, you know, to pier- pierce the corporate veil. So you've got a lot of complicated technical legal issues here that are going to take years, okay, to to un, unwind, it, you know, if this if this settlement doesn't hold, and it probably is not going to hold now. So um, that and I'll, and I'll. But shouldn't this serve as precedent for future cases potentially that there should be some level of personal accountability for this type of stuff? And is there no? Well, if they if they that? were convicted of a crime, then you'd have it'd easy. It'd be easier to bring a civil a civil case. I mean, you could still bring a civil case. I mean, they have to try it. Right. I mean, you'd have to go you have to bring them to trial. Right. As Suzanne said, they'd have to be a trial on civil, like a tort, basically tort legislation. And and then the first thing that their lawyers will do will say, forget almost regardless of the, fa- you know, the facts, you know, they're they're protected from 
from liability because of, 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 of the corporate shield, there's a very broad and, you know, protection for executives of companies to make bad business decisions, okay? Where you usually ha- could bre- may be able to break a cor- corporate, uh, the, pierce the corporate veil is if there's, if there's legal fraud, if there's some criminal act, you know, activity, which, you know, they haven't been convicted of, okay? I mean, they could simply say, you know, we didn't know, it's whatever, it's, you know, the, dr- 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 no, I mean, it, it, it's a whole, it's a whole drawn out thing. And the only time I can tell you in all of my history where I can remember on a big corporate situation where, and again, it was kind of squeezed out by the government, okay? So it wasn't even a, you know, it wasn't like a, you know, was WorldCom. In WorldCom, the government put enough pressure on the uh, on the board of directors, by the way, not just the executives. They got some of the board members to pony up money, okay? personally for the fraud but there was fraud at worldcom remember the ceo of worldcom went to jail for a very long time for accounting fraud okay it was one of the biggest accounting frauds in the nation's history and in that case they did pierce the corporate veil even to get to some of the board of the members of the board of directors that's the only time i can remember seeing it and yeah i mean this is the problem uh, we don't have a mechanism that's clear. I mean, I guess criminal, uh, going after them in criminal court, which will be really hard to to imagine. I'll just end this story with just think about the fact that while the worst thing that's happened to the Sacklers uh, has been that their name was removed from the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, and, you know, uh, that they showered with, as as this article says very eloquently, blood money, a uh, bunch of families won't have their loved ones to, to share Christmas with. So, um, yeah. Uh, and again, I, I, for, for anyone who wants any more education on this, it's actually a huge deal. It impacts, I think, globally, just the different ways that pain is being addressed. Um, Dope Sick on Hulu has been an excellent way for me to learn about this. Uh, funnily enough, even though it's like a drama, it talks. it's very factually based. And I thought it was actually very well made and talks a lot about you know, just, it started out with good intent and then slowly transformed into this very financially focused mission uh, that took, you know, millions of lives, which is really, really scary. So Dope Sick, D-O-P-E-S-I-C-K. I'll also tweet it out. It's a great, great one. By the way, wasn't this drug sold all over the world? So they, they may have liability in other countries too. Yeah. I mean, so... They got into Europe, yeah, hopefully, but I'm not positive based on the show. So let's move on. Unless people have specific comments, we'll move on uh, uh, to a much more sort of ridiculous story. Uh, but it's from science. <laughs> I pinned it to the top. Uh, so um, it's fascinating. I, I, I don't know the evolutionary pressures behind this. I'm assuming there's an evolutionary case to be made. But, uh, you know, there's been talks around pheromones. And, you know, when you brought up when Uncle Jimmy, who is our favorite uncle at Thanksgiving, brings up things around pheromones, we all kind of laugh at him. Uh, But Uncle Jimmy is right. So there's a new chemical that has been found uh, uh, that, uh, that, again, science.org, you can look at the link. I know, I, you know, you go on Amazon, as they say, there are a bunch of different people selling pheromones. 
but now a new study actually shows that there's an odorless compound, I'm not kidding, emitted by people, and in particular babies, called hexadecanal, uh, or hex, that appears to foster aggressive behavior in women and more docile behavior in men. And you can't call it a pheromone per se, but come on. Did anybody see this coming except for Uncle Jimmy? Uh, I, I, I'm just saying, and I wonder what this means. I mean, does this mean that there are a bunch of different pheromones that we just don't know about? Um, it's a fascinating story and worth, worth a read. You know, uh, uh, so what they showed was humans emit hex from their skin, their saliva, and even their feces. And it's among, among the most abundant molecules that babies emit from their heads. Tell me that you haven't sat there and be like, mm, I love smelling that baby's, baby's head. Has anybody ever done that? I have. I've done that to my nephews, my poor nephews. Uh, and it's, it's a thing. It's legitimately a thing. That's like uh, the cologne in Anchorman with Ron Burgundy, <laughs> the sex panther. 60% of the time. Works every Mama, time. Mama Bear takes on new. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, Danish, and I, Danish can I put a yeah evolutionary biology spin Absolutely. On go ahead. Um, oh, yeah, please. So, I'm dying to... Uh, if, yeah, if, if, you look, if you look at the... Uh, the role of pheromones that have been studied massively in non-human um, animals. Um, it is a very powerful central role in um, animal behavior um, across species. And so to the extent that that enhances reproduction, that leads to uh, acquisition of a mate successfully, that leads to more uh, copies of your DNA, it is highly selected for. I believe that what's happened from an evolutionary perspective is that with the evolution of language and tool use, uh, humans have escaped, they've sort of reached escape velocity from a lot of the constraints of evolutionary biology and non-human species that we're only beginning to understand. So do we have vestigial pheromones? Of course, it's deep in our DNA. It's millions of years of evolution and we've only adopted uh, fire as the first technology and language as the first uh, sort of sophisticated communication that the role of pheromones has diminished. But the fact that the role is diminished and it may not be as actively selected for doesn't mean they disappeared. It just means that they've atrophied. And so we're gonna find um, a huge array. There's no question, we're gonna find a huge array of human pheromones that are pretty much vestigial in function, um, but very much active in species that don't have sophisticated forms of communication and tool use. It's fascinating. Okay, I'm gonna do a little bit of reading here, but this is an incredible, can I just talk about this study design? It's yeah, I wanted, so to, good. I wanted to just, I mean, give a devil's advocate perspective. Well, I mean, not devil's advocate. I'm just thinking like, why would it, so they're saying that it causes aggression or like creates aggressive uh, behavior in the mom and docility within the dad. Initially, mama, I read- mama bear, mama bear and a supportive partner. <laughs> yeah, I, initially I read that is, you know, a little opposite. I was thinking, you know, I would think if anything, the mom would be a bit more affectionate upon, you know, smelling her can, and maybe the father needs to use aggression to uh, get a. Get oh, people. you're about to. Oh, you're about to. You're about to don't get Don't touch get my it. babies. Oh. That's right. It's, oh, it's, it's the way no. they're using the term aggression. I bet Danish is going to say that. <laughs> no, no, go oh, ahead, Anna Marie. You were. 
No, no, I, you've got the thing in front of you, so you're the better person, but that's, that's, the, that's right. So, so the, this is a very interesting thing, which is uh, even, I mean, uh, I, I don't want to speak to the authors. I know they meant well, but the word aggressive was an interesting use of words. I, I think it's protective probably is a better use of words, uh, but it's hard to, the way that they did the study was interesting. So, okay, let's walk through this. So the, to, te to test how X hex affects people, Eva Mishore, who earned her PhD in Sobel's lab, uh, created a series of computer games designed to evoke intense frustration. Uh, and they, they tested on 126 uh, human participants. They were measuring the frustration. They've actually, it's a validated uh, computer game. And half of the volunteers wore a hex-infused adhesive strip on their upper lips uh, while they played, whereas the other half wore strips that smelled identical but were hex-free. So they had these tasks, and one of the tasks, the participants negotiated with an unseen partner to divvy up a sum of virtual money. I'm not kidding. Okay, so the participants thought that they were playing with another person, but in reality, they were actually playing against computers. And if, the player, if a player offered their partner anything less than 90% of the whole amount, the computer rejected their proposals with a bright red no, <laughs> preventing them from earning any money. So next, the participants played a game in which they earned opportunities to blast that same partner with noise. <laughs> Players could choose how loud the blasts were by selecting buttons uh, that had emojis expressing varying levels of pain and in doing so, displayed their varying levels of aggression. So the idea here is, how do you elicit pain on somebody else that's not giving you what you want? And, uh, what they found was that sniffing hex did not call, calm all the participants down. In fact, it had very different impacts on men and women. And this, by the way, the article, the original journal articles in Science Advances. But women that were exposed to the chemical behaved 19% more aggressively in the noise blast task. They were, they were blasting the crap out of the computer. Um, uh, whereas men were actually 19% less aggressive. So they were doing that less. It's fascinating. I have to say. Could I, very... yeah, could, I, could, I, could I criticize the study design without having read it first? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and and I, I do need to read the study and know. But I would think they, they're using internal controls and comparing two partners. I think they need an external control of one totally exhausted, sleep deprived, emotionally drained person um, and uh, another person whose uh, case control matched. Uh, for, uh, you know, from the same perspective, not being all of those things. I, you know, I, 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 I don't doubt that there's some influence uh, uh, of the pheromone in, in this kind of context, but I, I do suspect that the level of exhaustion and sleep deprivation um, had, a, had a significant impact that was not accommodated for by their control structure. Well, also, if some of the subjects were postpartum, you know what I mean? Like, there's a big difference between two weeks postpartum, two months postpartum, and 12 months postpartum, right? Like, I think all of this changes as you, you know, move along. We all know with, with kids, that's why our patience level changes so much. I mean, time progresses, I think. But I, I don't know. I have to tell you just from um, what it, it must have been actually really, really kind of, bordering on f the fun side of scientific to be part of modeling the study though. <laughs> That's right. I agree. Um, so talking about this, all this, does anybody have a last comment before we move on to 
another sort of thing that was, this has been a very big news week. I have to say, this has been a very big news week. And in 20 minutes, we're going to have to cover a bunch. There's one that I wanted to focus on, which was around tech companies and healthcare. And I know Matt knows where I'm going to go with this, but I wanted to make sure that we, 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 again, keep it respectful. Uh, we're not going to bad name any major companies outside of what the articles already have. Um, but uh, did people hear about this issue with the therapist? Just absolute savageness uh, around this uh, situation. So uh, let me, uh, by the way, Prira, can you read the article just so that uh, we can make sure that we, because I, I, it, it's paywalled on New York Times, but I'm going to pin it for everybody to read. It's, it's an article. About the, the therapist. Times one. Yeah. So 1,320 therapists are worried about mental health in America right now. This came out on December 17th, so just two days ago. And so as Americans are about to head into their third year of pandemic living, uh, they uh, New York Times surveyed 1,320 uh, therapists, and they are finding themselves on the front lines of a mental health crisis. So people are desperate for support, but every therapist, and here's a quote, all the therapists I know have experienced a demand for therapy that is nothing like they have experienced before. Every available time slot I can offer is filled. General anxiety and depression, uh, well, so that's the end of the quote, but general anxiety and depression are among the most common reason patients seek support, but family and relationship issues also dominate these um, conversations. So it's, it's um, the, the article then goes on to show that demand has surged. Nine out of 10 therapists say that the number of clients seeking care is on the rise. Um, and every single day there are new inquiries. Um, so just so as to- we're going, yeah. So just wanted to kind of jump in there. Sorry, as this is happening, <laughs> the the counter story to this story is a SoftBank back health unicorn, Cerebral, reneges on salaries and health insurance for hundreds of therapists. Did you guys read that? And I, it, it is, we are literally walking into a mental health crisis. As somebody that. Uh, you know, right now we are struggling. Everybody is struggling to find mental health specialists. It is an absolute, uh, it's impossible out there. And in the middle of all of this, SoftBank backs Cerebral, which again, Cerebral has done great work, just so people know. They have a very good reputation within the industry. They just raised $300 million at a $4.8 billion valuation. And right after, They changed the status of more than 200 employees from salary to hourly workers. And they actually said, hey, we won't give you health insurance anymore. You know how we've been giving you health insurance for this whole time? We're going to actually make it contingent on you hitting your quotas. Oh, my God. This is the most (laughs) nauseating story ever. That part of it. That part of it. But I'm just going to weigh in with my own little personal experience. So um, we had a – both my kids have been through neuropsych um, full, full evaluations, neuropsych full evaluations at the University of Minnesota. And my older daughter, there's a whole backstory to all of this that's probably more than you guys want to hear, but it had to do with when her sister had, was diagnosed with um, a brain tumor and underwent this, the surgery and the treatment following for her brain tumor. That was like a trigger mechanism for the older daughter. But anyway, um, needless to say, we, we found a, a the care team was excellent. We got her to a great therapist. She continued to see for a couple of years. And I actually um, tried to, and we're like super users, right? Like we have a pizza punch card almost at the University of Minnesota Children's Hospital, which we're there all the time. And so I went back to 
that same um, therapist and care team to see if there was any way we could, based on pediatric um, screening findings, we could get our daughter back in. So it's kind of like existing patient, even though she'd fallen off fewer sessions in recent years. The wait time, the wait time to see any of the, the adolescent um, therapy or neuropsych staff at the University Health System, which is the largest in the state of Minnesota, is 18 months. 18 months if you have a pediatric or adolescent patient that needs to be seen and hasn't been yet through intake and even if they have the wait times 12 months so you're relegated to the emergency room i'm just going to say this for the like for anyone who doesn't know right like if you have a, a a teenager or a child who needs to be seen you know urgently because you have concerns about their health and safety you're rele relegated to the emergency room which is the last place you want to be right now and it's just the last place the physicians in that emergency room want you to be right now so i just wanted to emphasize this point and how tragic it is so so you know and it speaks to and again i run a startup some of the people that are up here are very involved with startups but it speaks to the fact that ultimately we're seeing the patterns repeat themselves even in startups so it's great that we are seeing these incredible, I mean, Cerebral, they have an incredible reputation, by the way. They, they were actually known, at least from my vantage point, as being decently pro-clinician and pro-therapist. Like, they're, I mean, they have hundreds of therapists. They, they've done a great job. They, they provide good service. They, they don't have a bad reputation, but now they do. Uh, <laughs> you know, with this- but on, a, on a positive note, I mean, not, not about them, but just generally, I've seen personally and through anecdotes therapy be much more accessible through the pandemic than it used to be. I mean, the idea of sitting in waiting rooms and and filling out clipboards where now it's really a Zoom session. And so that's been a, a you know, a positive development in this otherwise horrible it is situation definitely more accessible. The to. question I will ask, Evan, as a retort to that, is it is it is that even though it's more accessible through telehealth, is it more available? Because the wait times are getting nuts. yeah. I only have I only have anecdotes. Really, really I've, I've had good success, but I understand that industry is in a crisis, uh, like everything else. So, um, but I, I just love it. the idea. I never understood why therapy you couldn't do over video, and yet now we can. So, I, some <laughs> small problem. I mean, therapy is clearly the killer application for Zoom, right? Like in, in healthcare or for for uh, video telehealth or audio telehealth. I mean. Because you don't need to do exams, you don't need to get labs, you don't need to do anything else. You or even even texting, you know, messaging is is a big use case. A lot of teens, you know, are happy to chat over messaging as well, more comfortably about issues. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating. But you know, going back to the story and around this ridiculous story, and again, want to be very very clear. Uh, you know, there is a. This is a real need. It has become more accessible, but you're gonna actually see this really very, in my opinion, very fascinating uh, change that you're gonna see. So I'm gonna predict this. This is a prediction. You're gonna see what happened in the airline industry happen in healthcare. And what I mean by that is there is a very specific healthcare uh, airline industry company that started this whole wave of, you know, Happy people, happy passengers. Southwest, maybe people recognize this. Uh, even their stock ticker is LUV. And you're gonna see now 
because we're entering into a shortage of clinicians across the board with healthcare becoming more accessible, as Evan said, now you need more clinicians because, you know, there's an expectation for, about same day, next day appointments. There's expectations around all of this. And you're going to see that one or two things are going to happen. Either, uh, the, you know, it'll just increase pay and you're going to see just compensation go up or you're going to see a little bit more catering and maybe even pandering to the clinicians. And maybe I'm wrong. Matt, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you think that that's going to happen? Do you think that people are going to say, you know what, we're going to make doctors and clinicians in general so happy that they stay because retention is a big problem right now in the industry. I don't know if Matt's there or not, but you know, that, that's advantage. If I could just very, very quickly, uh, two quick things. Uh, s- s- number one, s- Southwest stock symbol LUV is not. I know, I know. The word that love. was a joke. Yeah. Love, love, okay, love field in Dallas. Uh, but the other thing I was going to point out is on on them changing the health insurance for these people. I don't know how they do that if they if they're if they were salaries or they were employees. I mean, even if you switch them from salary to hourly, how you're compensating them, so you're not, you're not working on a fixed salary. Um, as long as they're working 32 hours a week, they'd be subject to the Obamacare ACA rules. They'd have to provide health insurance. So I don't know what quota they're using because the only quota that you could probably legally use if they were not re- working enough hours, correct? Yeah, so according according to this, this has to do... So what happens is they have to keep... The way that the industry works is they say, hey, you have to give provide me your availability. And they would say, okay, I'm available... 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, right? Um, But if the booking only happens for 12 hours that week, they don't get health insurance. And that's the idea. Right, that's true. So so they have to provide availability. So they're sitting around. They're waiting for patients. But let's say for whatever reason, no patients come, they suddenly get screwed. So they don't get paid whether a patient shows up or not. They only get paid. And going back to what John said earlier, in a fee-for-service world, that kind of makes sense, right? It's not about, it's about how many uh, Chandler, uh, you know, trigger alert, but you know, how many RVUs <laughs> you push, how many, I mean, these are the things that like in health systems are, are very well established. And you see these same quotas now coming into tech, you know, tech startups. And I, I just don't think it's going to work. I, I think, I think, I think the blowback from this, they're going to have a lot of trouble recruiting, like a lot of trouble. So at least that's my opinion. We'll see what actually happens in real life. Yeah, uh, honest, maybe, real quick. maybe. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. You know, I was with a, a group of second year medical students like a couple uh, weeks ago, and there's about 145. And, you know, I kind of asked them uh, who wants to go into primary care and what, maybe three people out of 145. And so it has to do with, like you mentioned, is all the medical students want to be specialists because of, like you said, RVUs and payments. Yeah, and that's actually a huge issue. People always say, oh, there's a shortage of primary care doctors. Why don't you just make more primary care doctors? And it's like, uh, go to any medical, like my medical school class, I think four people went into primary care. Um, and very few people want to go out and become therapists. It's not like an easy job. Uh, by the way, therapists on telehealth therapists, some of them are making more than doctors right now, clearly more, because it's, it's so hard to find, you know, good uh, m- more important than just good, uh, licensed social workers or therapists that know what they're doing that are available by telehealth and maybe accept insurance. It's actually like a huge challenge. And so, uh, Erica, any any thoughts on this before we move on? Um, 
I mean, thoughts, but nothing useful here, I don't think. I, I mean, obviously, I feel the primary care shortage. Um, I don't think numbers overall are as abysmal um, once people actually get into, like, if people choose internal medicine or family medicine as a residency choice, I, do, I actually think that sometimes people can be recruited into primary care roles um, once they're there. But obviously, people who choose surgical fields or specialty fields from the get-go, um, you know, aren't going to lean towards primary care. And I do think, yeah, I have I have really great mental health coverage um, through my VA benefits, which are really unusual. Um, we actually, as a family, have um, unlimited mental health coverage, which is zero-dollar copay, which is unheard of. Um, through our federal coverage HMO, but I have friends who are paying out of pocket $150 and up um, a therapy session for one hour. Um, and it's not sustainable. Um, you know, the I don't know how we're gonna sort of get through this. And then I think the other piece that is worth noting is the sort of corollary trauma that the therapists are, are dealing with. I mean, the therapists need therapists at this point. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where they're getting their care or how they're do, sort of managing their self-care. Um, so I think the burnout rate for the therapist is pretty high, too. Yeah, if I, I, if I, go ahead, John. Go ahead. No, oh, if I, just, I want to just quickly chime in real quick on the training, too. If you think about it, child and adolescent psychiatry, right after medical school, you can't train in that. You actually have to do a residency first. And so that's, what, four years of psychiatry, and then you have to do a two- or three-year fellowship. And so the reimbursement for child and adolescent psychiatry is about the same as a psychiatrist for an adult. So you really have to love that field because you're going to be paid as a fellow, which is what, nine, 10 bucks an hour for two years for an opportunity cost of losing thousands of dollars. So I think that's the problem. Yeah, just just quickly. Um, so there's a parallel between uh, the secondary trauma experienced by therapists, and there's there's a big literature also on secondary trauma uh, among journalists uh, who are covering uh, really difficult situations, mass shootings, and so forth. And what what therapists are experiencing right now is they're just deluged with an inordinate demand uh, from a rising um, individual need uh, for therapy because of all the trauma associated uh, with COVID. And similarly, in healthcare workers, the, uh, the moral injury um, that uh, frontline healthcare workers are feeling globally, not just in uh, behavioral health or primary care, but globally, they're feeling about how their ability to deliver the best possible care to communities is harmed by uh, just the sheer volume uh, of uh, COVID coming into the hospital and, and what, what that's doing to the decision process and triage uh, is, is, is very emotionally and, and morally disturbing um, to the frontline workers. So this, this, the, the second order pandemics of moral injury and secondary trauma are going to be with us for a generation. I, I think we have a generational insult that is affecting especially children, especially in the tween ages. Um, and it's also affecting healthcare workers, especially primary care and, and behavioral therapists. So anything um, that we can do to augment that is going to be to augment the supply side there is helpful. What, what I don't recommend is what was published as an op-ed in the New England Journal of Medicine decades ago, 
about primary care and the proposal. I think it was Robert Petersdorf, the academic cardiologist who wrote the article. Uh, but he basically said, you know, we're having trouble getting enough primary care docs. What we need to do is we need to raise the, the, the pay for primary care interns and residents and then let them go enter the field. Basically, in my view, when I read that article, I was infuriated because I thought what you're saying is overpay them during the training period vis-a-vis -vis their peers, and then they can enter a, a, a lifetime of relative underpayment vis-a-vis -vis the specialist. So that kind of approach, I think, has been floated very um, conspicuously in the past, and hopefully we won't repeat that error again, because it obviously um, hasn't worked very well. And what we really need to do is uh, support primary care and behavioral therapists better in terms of uh, the resources made available to them so that they're not overwhelmed uh, just with sheer volume, let alone the additional layers of moral injury and secondary trauma. Yeah, I agree. I think the one thing I would add to what John said is, you know, you have to incentivize. And so if you're in medical school like NYU, and let's say you decide to go into primary care and the medical school is fully funded, that's an incentive right there. Because the typical medical student comes out with about one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars in loans. And so that's why they're going to the subspecialists, because they're trying to pay back the loans. But back you know, it, it is it is interesting because it's got kind of going into where we're getting at that time. We're going we're going to start talking about the pandemic itself. You know, I spoke with a physician. Uh, you know, she is an incredible physician, uh, trained with me uh, at some point in my training. So you can't find out who who this is. But you know, she became a caregiver during the pandemic, uh, and I've been a caregiver for years. My, uh, you know, uh, until recently, and. Um, she was talking to me about it because she's, she was having a lot of trouble balancing her home life where she's a caregiver for one special needs child and her parents, uh, one of her parents and uh, her work life. And what's interesting is compensation never was mentioned. <laughs> what was mentioned was compassion and the lack of it from the legacy health systems. And so what I will say is during this pandemic, um, you know, the moral injury aspect is real, right? Like you're, 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 you're there, you're like, hey, we have all of these tools in our tool belt, but nobody cares. And you feel like that in that moment because it's your eighth patient that's coming in with this problem, or you have to say no to a patient that probably should be hospitalized, but there's no space. And all of that really bears on you. But the other part of it is, and this is the honest truth, this is the inconvenient truth of healthcare, which is a lot of our colleagues don't care about what's going on in your life. It's the honest truth. And she said she could not believe that we were caring for others, but yet when it comes to caring for each other, we're not so good about it. And the, again, I hope, I hope I'm not ruffling too many feathers, but it's the honest truth. There's no compassion for our colleagues like we i guess expect to have and she's leaving the workforce and so this is the reality of healthcare i can tell you right now omicron the problem with omicron perhaps hospitalizations again conflicting data might be lower 1.7% is the numbers from south africa but imperial college's numbers were different and again who knows what the actual truth is we'll all find out soon enough perhaps deaths are significantly lower 
But you know what might actually happen that is scarier than anything else that doctors aren't talking about out loud? Is a lot of people might quit. I'm telling you right now, there's, this is like, you know, you get hit once and then you get hit twice and then you get hit a third time and you're like, nobody, it feels like for the providers, I promise you, I know that nobody wants to hear it. And depending on where you sit politically, you might not want to hear this, but I think there are a lot of doctors that are like, I'm done. And I'm seeing this like crazy. Every week I meet at least three or four doctors that are leaving the workforce. Isn't that great? And again, it might be because I think I'm more vocal. A lot of them have caregiving issues, a lot of, the, and especially, especially amongst female physicians. It has been something that I've been noticing. And again, it might just be my sample size, the people that I'm talking to, but I'm seeing this across the board, at least. And when I talk to my colleagues, they're like, man, this is real. Like it's actually happening. Doctors, especially doctors, but nurses for sure. Nurses have already started their resignation, but we're seeing this on the doctor side. Like never so when it comes before. to doctors, and again, uh, not in the healthcare industry, wouldn't it make sense for them if they feel this way just to leave these systems, leave these employers and just set out on their own and just decide their own hours, their own pay, their own practices? Wouldn't that be a solution for some of them or what are they? Possibly. Uh, Erica, you, feel free to chime in here. Well, you're still beholden to the then insurance companies. I say this as somebody who's chosen to work for the government my entire career because I don't want to have to deal with that nonsense. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not so easy to just pick up. Plus, you have to have startup capital and you have to have, um, you know, you, it is very difficult to just be a solo practitioner in our healthcare climate. And um, starting from scratch doesn't guarantee that you're not going to face the same things that are leading to your moral injury. Um, what I'd also like to say, um, Donish, is I think this, uh, I think the thing that's going to put me over the edge being in Michigan and where we've never really had a, that much of a lull and we're experiencing this spike and I'm not sh quite sure how Omicron is going to, I mean, it's just going to take us over the edge. I, I mean, we're already at capacity and I, I just don't even know what it's going to look like. Um, is this, this, this sort of, uh, unvaccinated healthcare workers. So this permission for exemption is evidence that uh, other healthcare workers don't give a shit about the majority of the healthcare workforce. Um, and I've been exposed to it because I'm managing our employee health response at my facility. Um, so unfortunately I know who is vaccinated and who isn't. Um, and it's a level of information I'd prefer I wasn't privy to, actually, because um, it's caused me to be quite judgmental. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, I, I think it, it actually shows us that people really, unfortunately, kind of don't give a shit about the greater good. Um, and I think it's hardened some many of us um, because if they cared, then they'd be vaccinated. Um, and at this point, it's this binary decision of um, get COVID um, or get vaccinated. Um, and maybe still get COVID, but be mild and, and be okay. Um, but I think, yeah, this is all leading to this moral injury that we're seeing. Um, I think that what you've hit on with the women leaving the workforce who have a choice to, I'm the primary breadwinner in my house. My husband is a stay-at-home dad. I don't have that choice. Um, and I'm part of a, a women's Facebook group where all of us are in that position. Um, many of us don't have a, a choice to make. Um, and so we're in it for the long haul and we're not leaving. Um, but it's it's not it's not been easy to just um, 
I just I know uh, a lot of primary care physicians who've basically done what 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 Evan suggested, and they just got out of all the insurance programs, and they call themselves concierge doctors. You know that they're doctors for the wealthy. You pay cash out of the pocket, and they t- and they they limit the number of patients they take. And in some of the well, you know wealthier areas of Los Angeles, it would be even difficult to find one of them one of them to take you because there's a lot of demand, and there's more demand for those concierge doctors than there is. I, yeah, I wanted I to could... add to that, uh, Ken, and tell you, I, as an emergency physician, I started a private practice, and it's a cash-based practice. It doesn't always have to be just for the wealthy in concierge medicine, which there are wait lists now for most concierge physicians, but there's a movement called Direct Primary Care dpcare.org. There are many physicians who, and they are unicorns, right? Because they have to be willing to go out on their own, get out of their malpractice covenant, restrictive covenant agreements with their employers, have the financial freedom, take on some debt sometimes to start a private practice. But for those that do, they can keep um, their practices in line with how they feel healthcare should be administered. And it's very gratifying. And I hope to anyone in the audience who's considering medical school or in medical school or in training, know this, that direct primary care is a really nice way to circumvent the health insurance uh, system. There are pro- And what's interesting, and John would love to hear from you at some point, but I was going to say that, you know, what was interesting though, and Catherine will be the first to, say this is that not everybody is built ken you know there are people that want to do academic medicine there are people that want to do other types of medicine they want to maybe work in the hospitals they want to be a hospitalist uh hard to be, open your own hospitals and so you know it's 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 the the hard part here is we have an entire generation of doctors that we're going to look back and say holy crap what did we just put them through and there's going to be an entire generation of especially female physicians. I'm saying this because I've been hearing this so much. And I, you know, I don't have that lived experience that they do. But the, there is this entire contingent that Erica was referring to and implying about that some can't leave because they are the primary, you know, breadwinners in the family. But the ones that can, a lot of them are. And concierge is great. Uh, if you look up what I do, I can, you can see that we're building a concierge care platform for the masses. But the hard part is going to be that there are people that can't afford it. So Catherine, you know, said that, hey, it doesn't just have to be wealthy people. And absolutely. But, you know, most people don't have discretionary income. And so, you know, uh, for them, people, the people that are on Medicaid, for example, people that are uh, on Medicare and, don't, and, and you know, living uh, Social Security check or Social Security check, you know, for a lot of those types of patients, DPC is a great option, but they put their money into the system for years and years so that they could get Medicare insurance. And now they're getting doctors. And I can tell you, you, you know what's really scary is that most doctors, as of the most recent numbers, the large majority of doctors are burnt out, right? So the chances that the doc, and by the way, when the doctor is burnt out, that doctor's decision-making is impaired. Every doctor will tell you. And this is not a hate on doctors. All the doctors know I love them. It's not about that. It's about the systems. So when you have a loved one and that loved one is being taken care of, the doctor that walks through the door is more likely than not burnt out. And if we don't start raising our hand and saying, holy crap, can we please get some fixes here? I can tell you, patients don't even know 
that this is going on. You hear about it, but it's hard to explain because we're literally, you know, the doctors are literally living it every day. And I think that it's become so difficult. And this story about the SoftBank backed company putting doctors and making them feel like gig workers, like they're nothing, like people off the street, these clinicians, you know, therapists are part of our clinical care teams. We treat them just like we treat anybody else. And yeah, you know, Donish, the only thing I would add, it, it is specialty specific. You know, when I finished residency 10 years ago, I was a hospitalist and you're right, it was very, very tough, but you know, other specialties, I mean, there there are like niches there, just like the, Dr. Katherine Johnson said. So to your point, you're right, but I think it's specialty specific and what you do with the situation. Uh, I disagree 100% on that, Chandler. I'm happy to send you a prereq. If you just Google Medscape burnout physicians, there is not one one specialty, Chandler, not one that does not have over 50% burnout. Yeah, right. but it's still... So I will disagree even if with you, you are 100%. like 50%, it's not 100%. So that means there's a yeah, percentage dude, of people, people that are not burned out. So you can't yeah. make a statement like everybody is... One out of two people. How does that make people feel who are patients? One out of two of your doctors is burnt out. That is a significant number. There are very few actual professions where burnout is this high. Oh, I, I agree with we you. We don't discuss From it. From a patient perspective, Chan, like- Chandler, let right. me just finish, please. But what I'm so, saying is so my that point, from the physician's perspective, not everybody is burnt out. I don't understand your point. My point is, my think, point is you're saying that there's a lot of burnout. And what I'm saying is not every physician is burnt out. So, of course, not every single physician so, so is burnt out. That's not the point that I was making. That it's over 50%. There are a lot of physicians that are not burnt out. That's all I'm saying. Like to your point, yes, the burnout issue is going up because of all the different factors you mentioned, but there are a lot of people that are happy with what they're doing right now. There, there's another phenomenon that, that's much broader than in healthcare. Um, and uh, it, it, it has to do with empathy and resilience and, and the sort of the meme around it is empathic burnout. So a lot of people go into medicine, especially primary care, um, and uh, to, some, to a great extent, beha behavioral health as well. Um, it's based upon an empathic uh, experience of the world of the provider. And so when you're an empath, and you're confronted with these moral injuries and these secondary traumas, it has a bigger effect on you. That's the nature of empathy. You 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 feel their pain, and so of course not a hundred percent of people are burned out, but those who aren't burned out um, have either you know extraordinary skills of resilience, and there are people who are incredibly empathic, who do extremely well under terrible circumstances, and then there are those who just are not genetically or behaviorally as empathic as others, and they can survive the moral injury and uh, the secondary trauma a little bit better. So of, of course there's a spectrum, but I think the, the thesis of this whole line of questioning um, is about um, the, the extremely high prevalence of burnout before COVID, and now on top of it, layered on top of it, are these other sources of burnout. Getting back to the question that took us down this thread of why don't physicians just simply, um, you know, leave environments where they're not respected, leave environments where they feel like a spoke and a cog, um, leave environments where they have uh, too little decision authority over the care of their own patients and go set up practice. It's actually, for the most part, there are two sort of trends emerging. One is the opposite of that, is that people 
um, are having such difficulty managing their front office, their back office, their billing, their their scheduling, um, and they're you know as as a solo practitioner or as a small group that they're joining larger groups in mass now and being acquired in ag in aggregation of groups. And then the other trend is towards concierge medicine. And originally, concierge medicine was very much catering to the rich and the famous. Um, and of course it works as a business model when you target people who have unlimited funds to, to demand um, uh, more of your time and, and yet protect the salary or even increase the salary. So the, there, in the early days of concierge medicine, in my humble opinion, there was a lot of sort of hubris and piety around, oh, well, we give everybody all the time they need. We practice real medicine. Well, that's easy to say when you're uh, targeting the rich and the famous. However, what Danish is talking about and what his uh, business is pursuing is how do we bring that kind of high efficiency care, high level uh, of care um, to the average person that doesn't have to be wealthy where cost is no issue. And I think that's the big challenge is how do we do that at scale um, in, not just in primary care, but, but across the waterfront. So I, I think there are huge opportunities during this disruptive moment that COVID has brought us to recalculate and re-regulate and rethink the reimbursement models and rethink um, how happy cows make good milk, that if we don't respect our healthcare workers, they're going to increasingly burn out, abandon the field. And I was shocked to hear, um, uh, not entirely, but I was surprised to hear that the number of applications to medical school this year is the highest in history. That's encouraging. Oh, John, I are... published a video on this. It, it's not just encouraging. It went up like, it went up from 55,000 to 67,000, which is like the largest single year jump in like the last 30 years. And, and let's hope that's not uninformed optimism. Let's let's hope that, that is, no, <laughs> exactly. That, you let's hope, John. You're yeah, right. 100%. Let's hope that, that that's tr that's truly that that's truly an empathic drive to make the world a better place. And exactly. I, I suspect a significant number of that increase is the latter, and I think a, sick, a significant portion of that increase is the former of uninformed enthusiasm about oh, I'm just going to go to medical school and fix all this if it were only so easy. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you 100%, John. You did a great job of kind of connecting everything. And, you know, my point is, and I agree with what Donish is saying, what my angle is, like I have buddies in Florida, like Fort Myers, and they didn't like the, the working-like atmosphere of primary care. And so they have a retainer system, uh, and they're seeing, what, 10 to 15 patients a day, and they're happy right now. They're not burnt out. Like, to your point, that might be a small little pocket of medicine, but you can find those things and you don't have to be burned out. But I agree with what you're saying, Donish. So I think we're on the same page. I'm just saying that, that you can actually find physicians that are not burned out in primary care using these different models that John talked about. The, the hard part with primary care, though, uh, and, you know, we should we should move on to the COVID stuff because that's I know a lot of people in the room are here to hear about the latest information we have on COVID, which, by the way, this week gave us so much light into what's going on. But it perhaps made Edward. I'm going to mute you for a second. Uh, thanks, thank you for joining us. I was going to say that you know that, but I will say, and I will say it up front, that we might have more questions than answers now. <laughs> uh, this was a confusing week. Yeah. Uh, so, so I have a question go to that. bridge the two topics, though, Danish. If you uh, go ahead, Cheryl. 
Okay, I I just want to know what is the default um handling method for someone who report positive. I mean, who who visit the clinic or hospitals uh with a positive test result. Oh, that's a good question. Is it? Uh, so there's many yeah. different approaches, and we have uh several clinical workflows around this. So it depends on whether what their oxygen level is and how sick they are. Yes. But right now, uh, that we have some early treatment medications that have been. Uh, that that uh, in, depending on which country you're in, uh, that have been approved. Uh, we have a you know global audience here. Molnupiravir is one. We're excited about Plaxo, Plaxovid that's along the way. Uh, we're excited about all these medications that have been shown to reduce. And actually, the Pfizer medication we're going to talk about a little bit. So I don't want to uh, talk too much about it. But we now have a lot of different medications that have actual clinical data. And one of the big ones that I'm going to bring up at uh, in in an hour and fifth twenty uh, an hour and fifteen minutes, mm -hmm. Angela Rearson, who was actually here, but I'm gonna help her run her room. Uh, right. She's actually one of the people that worked on fluvoxamine, which is uh, a existing medication that's already approved by the FDA for treatment of OCD, has very encouraging data in early treatment. So there mm -hmm. are some early treatment options. If they need mm -hmm. oxygen, then we give them oxygen. If they need to be hospitalized, we would hospitalize them. And there, mm -hmm. there's also obviously Regeneron and other right. medications. The challenge with Omicron has been the efficacy of the of the monoclonal antibodies and other things. So we'll go into that, Cheryl, but hopefully that's good mm -hmm. level that's setting. And the, the reason why I ask is because in Singapore and in Japan, the default, uh, I mean, unless they are, they are, they are a really severe condition, if not, they will be asked to recover at home. So, so this is a way to actually uh, reduce the burden of healthcare workers, including doctors, nurses, and the other frontline workers. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and that's that's a very good point. So, Cheryl, thank you for bringing that up because that's a good transition into Omicron. So, yes, in the U.S. as well, most patients, the large, large majority of patients, are asked to recover at home. We don't hospitalize every, you know, a lot of patients. But the thing about the U.S. and Japan has a little bit of this with with the aging population. But we have an aging population in the U.S. And again, uh, forgive me for being crass, but we have an obese population in the U.S. We have metabolic disease in the U.S. Um, at rates that you haven't seen in a lot of other places. And so, you know, we have this aging, sick population. And so therefore, unfortunately, we tend to have more hospitalizations than other countries uh, because of that reason. But we do have, and Catherine can walk you through a bunch of different uh, things that obesity does, uh, 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 you know, how it affects our immune system, how it affects inflammation, how the early data shows that COVID is affected by fat cells and uh, and can enter fat cells and all of this other stuff. But, you know, uh, the, the big sort of take home is that every country and every individual actually reacts differently to COVID. And unfortunately, in the U.S., we don't have a super healthy population which is why we do see, on average, the U.S. and the U.K. usually see higher rates of hospitalizations. We also have more hospital beds available, so we're a little bit quicker, to your point, Cheryl, than Japan and others to, to hospitalize. And so uh, let's get into Omicron. So let's set the uh, uh, prereq. You were asking about your audio. Go ahead. Yes, I want to make sure you can hear me. But um, the first thing I wanted to start with is there's been so much stuff that came out this week, and Dr. Donish and Honestly, I come here to get educated more than I come here to try to help. Um, so there's actually a lot of conflicting stuff, but let's just start with just some objective overviews. Just yesterday, New York reported 21,000. That's three zeros. That's not 2,100. 21,000 new cases on Friday. 
I decided to figure out what was going on for myself. So I went down to New York and I, right out of Grand Central, there was the longest line I have yet to ever see. And they're actually doing rapid COVID tests. Um, and it was a big ass line, dude. I like posted on Instagram and I was like, this is crazy. Um, and then I, I then proceeded to stay there for the rest of the day. And it seems like it's not getting any better. The hospitals are getting closer and closer to capacity. Same thing here in Connecticut. And we're seeing precursors. And Dr. Johnish, you said this last week. We have always been one and a half to two weeks behind what's happening in the UK. And I just don't know how, not just we, but how long is it going to take us to learn <laughs> that we need to prepare? <laughs> like we literally saw this last week. I feel like this is all we talked about. We're like, dude, this shit is going to hit the fan. And now it's proceeding to happen. And it's as if like everyone's surprised for some reason, despite... <laughs> this all having happened with Delta and now is happening again and happened last week in the UK. So I just, I'm, I'm very confused by why maybe we're not learning and I'd love everyone's insights. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's, well, it's I want to make sure, uh, John, if you don't mind, can you do Go a ahead. review of the data from this week? I'm happy to do it as well, whatever you guys want, but there's a lot of data that came out this week. Specifically, I want to set this up and uh, Ellie, I want you to talk through the Imperial college data. I don't know if you did a deep dive. I have done a deep dive in it, so happy to share it if you don't want to. But, you know, there's two pieces of data that have come out, okay? One has been the South Africa data on the Omicron variant, and the other one has been the data from Imperial College London, not all of the UK, okay? This is specifically from Imperial College London. And based on that data, the SAGES modeling. So SAGES modeling for people that are not, again, we talk so much about the US, it's fun to talk about the UK. In the UK, they do something very interesting, which is they actually do modeling and the government actually listens to the public health experts to that modeling. It's a fascinating concept. And um, sorry, CDC I, I does mean, modeling, it just gets... Exactly, that's my point. The second part <laughs> is probably more important than the first. And so, uh, but the interesting thing about the SAGES modeling was, and they've been criticized over this over and over, is that they actually modeled the worst case scenario and were recommending public policy on the worst case scenario. And they didn't even mention the best case scenario, which was the South African uh, data. So let's, let's set up the, the, the things side by side. Uh, do you want to start with the Imperial College data, Eli? I would love to hear your thoughts on it, what you learned from it, and then we can, I can talk about South African data. Well, so I, 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 I didn't do the deep dive that I would have done if I hadn't had deadlines this week, but the, the headline point that um, it looks like um, um, hospital hospitals uh, will be on course to be overwhelmed uh, is what, of course, got everybody's attention, very rightly so. Um, and and fortunately, Boris Johnson, you know, paid attention to it. Um, unfortunately, that's the best I can do, having just woken up. Oh, no worries. I'm happy to go over it. So let's start with the data that we know uh, a lot. A lot of talk has been done about. So let's walk through it. So. As people know, it's been about a month uh, since uh, we first detected Omicron. Um, and, you know, we've learned a few things, okay? We've learned that Omicron spreads faster than Delta. The data, again, this is out of South Africa, says that it's nearly twice as fast. And so when people say that, don't assume that's linear, just to be clear. That means that it doubles, so it's more contagious and it doubles faster. So when you start walking over time, and if anybody wants to comment on this before I move on, it makes a difference. So if you have a faster doubling rate, which means that you're more contagious, you have a faster doubling rate, if you start watching it over time, one curve 
is going exponentially faster than the other. And that is incredibly important. So, you know, we're seeing doubling rates like we've never seen before. This is twice as contagious, at least from the data from South Africa. Um, and it, it, it was actually, it wasn't in that study, but some a different news item was that it was actually like a fraction of a day faster uh, doubling time in the UK than in South And so why does that matter? Well, uh, so that's, it matters because more cases, so there's a few reasons, more cases mean more hospitalizations, even if the hospitalization rate is lower, the way I was explaining it to a family member is, yes, the slice of the pie is smaller, but you can't yeah, just look pie. at the percentage or the pie, pie, slice of the pie being smaller. Yep. It, it's the pie itself is getting faster, bigger, faster, 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 faster. It's a huge so pie. imagine, a, a, yeah, it's a huge pie. You know, when you see the number of people that are getting infected, when they are hanging out for an event, it's mind blowing. There was a hockey game that, uh, that I just heard about recently. And there was one pa- player that was waiting on the PCR test to come back and did not know that he was positive. So he ended up playing because he was asymptomatic. The entire hockey team became uh, positive for, for Omicron. It is crazy. Hey, can I, Dan, Danish, can I just do a very, very quick illustration of the math? So uh, with a doubling time of two days, it's uh, two to the exponent of number of dub- doubling times. So in 20 days, that's 10 doublings. Two to the tenth power is greater than a thousand. If you go out to forty days, it's a thousand times a thousand. It's a million. So one per at this doubling rate, one person can lead to the infection of a million people in forty days' time, assuming a doubling time of every two days. So that's why this is so much faster. And the issue is, we, you know, from the very beginning, we talked about you know flattening the curve, and and I prefer thinking of flattening the spike um, because we see these spikes. So the spike, these huge rapid spikes that we saw with the original variant, and then the alpha and the beta and the uh, delta, and now Omicron. Um, those the the both the rate of ascent in those spikes and the ultimate height of those spikes depend depends immensely on the doubling time and so this spike is already um, higher in Denmark than it's ever been so you mentioned the UK and South Africa the Denmark's uh, the Danish are publishing as well and they're terrified not necessarily because it's the same patho- uh, pathogenicity or more but because as you were saying Danish when you have a huge surge in populations infected at the exact same time. A small percent of a huge number is uh, going to be hospital overwhelmed, like we have not seen any of us in our lifetimes. And and what's we're on the cusp of this in the UK, in Denmark, and very soon in the US, and very soon in a theater new, near you, no matter where you live, because of this extremely high contagiousness. So people breathing a sigh of relief because it might not be as pathogenic that's very short-sighted for that reason. And the other reason it's very short-sighted is that when you have these massive uh, co-infections, you know, with both, you know, Delta and Omicron and others still circulating, and when you have the infection rates, the prevalence um, of people infected at the same time, the opportunity for Omicron to uh, mutate further into something that, again, escapes immunity. So one of the things that, that has emerged throughout this pandemic is people saying, like the radiologist in the White House of the former administration, like the Barrington Declaration, um, 
saying, oh, we just need like the Swedish approach. Oh, we just need to let this roll through and we'll all get immunity and we'll be done with this thing sooner. Well, the original example in Manaus, Brazil was that they uh, Manaus was devastated with a 70% zero positivity. They thought, oh, thank God we're done. And six months later, beta came along and they had another 70% of the population infected, exactly. affected and hospitalized and dying. And we've now seen that with uh, you know Delta uh, in in India overtaking the prior variants with a high prevalence, we've now seen it with Omicron overtaking the uh, Delta virus. I mean, Omicron blew right through South African populations, despite the fact they had just completed. So they had peak immune peak immunity, not six months later. They had peak immunity from Delta when Omicron took over. So this notion still. That, we're, that we can count on a more contagious thing to deliver us out of the pandemic into an endemic is still a hopeful thought that I hold, but hope is not a plan. And there is no, <laughs> there, there is no reason to believe um, that we're not going to see another variant. So I don't want to freak everybody out that this is an endless cycle. There will come an end to this. Um, but, but thinking about this in terms of let the virus provide global natural immunity has proven a failure three times already with experiments in nature. So we need like to be- how many times does it take? Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we need to be very careful about that thinking. It's still hopeful that someday we will exhaust the permutations of mutations that can lead to overtaking the last variant's immunity, but, but we shouldn't count on it with each successive variant because we've already been fooled three times. And, and waning, waning immunity oh. undercuts that. Sorry, Sorry Francine, go ahead, please. Did anyone read what I um, read this week, which is the CDC overcounted the people who had been vaccinated in the United States by millions, and that they were counting people who um, who were. Francine, I didn't. I didn't hear that. Can you please share that article? Uh, send it to yeah. Rack or myself, and we'll we'll let us review it before we share it with the world. Uh, you know how yes. we work. So we're a little bit. Yes. We want, and just to remind everybody, the way it works here is that we look at everything, and then we make sure that we we we. Thank you, Francine, for sharing that. I, I'd love to see that. Uh, you know, one of the hardest problems right now that we're facing in social audio is that the, 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 the noise of misinformation has become louder than, uh, than, oh, Dr. Keisha, perfect, uh, uh, than, the, than, the, than the sound and the signal of, of actual information. And so, oh, perfect. Priwak, can you, can you pin, review that and make sure? And then pin it up. Uh, thank you for sharing that. So uh, I was going to say that you know the 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 hard part that's become is that we don't have a good way of going through this. So the way that we do it at Health News Around the World is that we review everything. We then want to run it through the experts to evaluate the evidence for this, and then we try to share it as much as possible. And that's our model. And we're looking at different approaches. We mentioned it last week around building a DAO that actually does this in a Web three format. Build you know working with people at Clubhouse, people at, uh, on Twitter Spaces and trying to figure out how we can get our voice out there more and more. But there's got to be a way that we can make the voice of information louder than misinformation. So Francine, thank you for sharing that. Uh, uh, you know, just want to make sure that this specific article is, uh, I don't, you know, it's ABC Action News. We haven't reviewed it yet. I, I reviewed it. Review it. Oh, you reviewed, I reviewed it? it can, I, yeah, I you walk us yeah, so I mean, it just seems like they were following the CDC's objective data that was being reported. So according to a blue report, the number of seniors that um, 
had received at least one dose stood at 99.9% for several weeks in the CDC's data. So you can actually probably go to CDC's data and see what it was a few weeks ago. And then last weekend, that number changed to 95%. So there can be obviously a lot of reasons that could happen. You know, you could just have a lot of, the denominator could increase, the numerator could decrease. Uh, but it seems like, um, according to uh, this article, uh, there was like a misma- miscounting uh, based on the number of people who were actually vaccinated. And like, ultimately, that's what led, led to that discrepancy. Medscape had that article and so did um, Bloomberg. Oh, awesome. Thank you, Dr. Fancy, for sharing that. I wanted to go back to the thing that's been at hand with Omicron. So let's walk through this, okay? So I wanted to make sure, and John, thank you for weighing in. I just want to kind of get to the, the actual data. So the, the data shows that of the people that got Omicron in South Africa, which again, if you just right now, for me, just for me, if you can go on Google and look at South African cases and just Google that, you're going to see this. When he said it's a spike, it literally looks like a vertical line that's now coming down, right? And so it's, it's a very interesting, uh, it's, it's much more sharp than previous waves. And it's, it's fascinating in many, many different ways. But, you know, so this, this sharp spike came and in the middle of the sharp spike, they were doing an analysis of the data. And I believe it was 200,000 people, but I'll double check real quick because I have it in front of me. Yes, it was 200,000 people. They looked at the data and they saw a 0.17% or sorry, 1.7% hospitalization rate, if I'm not incorrect here. And it just gives you a sense of how low that hospitalization rate is. But if you just look at that and you know, we all have uncle Jimmy again, who's, who's at, who's going to be at Christmas. He's going to be like, you know, this Omicron variant is not very dangerous. And, you know, for at an individual level, perhaps it's not. But Erica will tell you that the ICUs are full still. And as you know, they're full of Delta patients, but we're just as scared about it being full with Omicron patients because even a 1.7% uh, hospitalization rate, yes, it's lower, but at, with, a, with a contagious disease that's doubling faster. You just heard John articulate yeah. so many in such a great way. You know, uh, we can't think that way right now because one of them is linear and the other one is logarithmic. And it's, uh, that's what's been so hard. How do, I, how do we explain this to the general public in a way that they can actually uh, understand the difference I, here? I have one idea. Ali, um, sorry. It, um, I'll be quick because so, I really want to hear what you have to say. Um, an epidemiologist here in Minnesota, who's one of the world's finest and most um, notable, was said it to me about as plainly as I've heard it, and that's to say, everyone who already doesn't hasn't had um, their uh, completed vaccines uh, or had uh, a case of in the last six months a case of um, COVID will get Omicron. Everyone. Like no one's going to escape this one. What's what's left, um, and the even those that have been have fully vaccinated and boosted, a bunch of them are going to get it too. Um, they won't get the cases that'll land you in the hospital, but they're going to get it. So it's one of these that like seeps through all the remaining cracks, and and to the, really the only way I've been able to sort of make a little bit of a dent with people that um, are at this very moment, at least Americans, at this very moment that haven't been vaccinated, uh, um, my view is that their heels are dug in and they don't see any, I, I don't, 
know what it's oh, going to man. take to change. I don't know, I don't know what it's going to take to change their minds. I hope you, I hope you have a better argument, but but I think what what I feel like is making a little bit of a difference is is the understanding that that look, it, you know, you can just do these this basic numerator denominator math and see like it it's the number of people that are going to land in a hospital if what the epidemiologists are t saying to us and what the virologists are saying to us happens, we don't have the infrastructure to deal with that. And then you get the argument from Uncle Jimmy that says, well, but that's what they were saying in March of 2020, right? Like, we've heard that before, you know, we did fine. We set up a few extra beds and we did fine. I'm like, no, this isn't gonna be anything like that. And how do, you know, what's gonna happen to Uncle Jimmy you know, when you fall off the ladder or you have a heart attack or you get in a car accident or, I mean, <laughs> like the only way I've been able to try to have people make any sense of it is to understand that, like, don't just understand, like, if you need to be seen for something, you won't be able to be seen. Seriously. There's not going to be a bed for you. Seriously, uh, that that's such an important point. I've literally been telling my friends and family and anybody who's interested um, that I have... I have restricted any activity, uh, and I'm a, I'm a adrenaline junkie, um, that puts you at risk of breaking a bone or getting injured in a way that puts you in need of healthcare for the next two to three months. Um, this 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 over hospital overwhelm in both Denmark and the UK, they're on the steep part of the uptick. They're not even close to hitting the peak of the uptick and they're overwhelmed and they're freaked out. And getting back to the question of why don't we weren't learn our lesson, you know, we followed the UK carbon copy uh, Every with, single alpha, <laughs> with alpha. We followed the UK carbon copy with Delta. When Delta um, started coming through and um, there was the uh, uh, advisory that we could take our masks off because it hadn't hit us yet, that is the time that masking and social distancing would have been most appropriate to step up when we're in the early phase. Because given that exponentiality of how it spreads, and particularly with Omicron, the time to do the masking and social distancing is when we can look across the pond in the UK, look across the deeper pond into South Africa and say, oh, here we go again. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on us. Now we're fooling ourselves three times and delaying the masking. So why is that? Why is it that the public health community and policy hasn't adapted? It does, and I think it was uh, Chandler or someone else was, was uh, just saying that it isn't that necessarily the, the epidemiologists and the virologists aren't sounding an alarm, they are. It's that in a very divided nation where uh, uh, a Senate representative circulated a video, a YouTube video, three, two to three weeks ago, of a stadium packed with unmasked people saying, "Real America is over COVID." When you have that kind of dynamic at, on a political theater, it's very difficult for policymakers in Washington to be able to say, "Oh, we see it coming. We're going to implement hardcore um, uh, methods and policies right now." because of the blowback from the people who believe that COVID is a hoax and science is a joke and that, uh, that, that we don't need to worry about what's happening in the UK. So we, we have this epistemic disruption 
about how we believe what we believe. And it is playing out massively in this pandemic, like it's played out in every prior pandemic, the Spanish flu, the plague, et cetera. This is carbon copy of human nature with each prior major pandemic. Well, that's the thing, John. It's Edward. Uh, I just uh, those are that's a very good observation. And, and and as I was watching the Patriots Colts game last night, uh, this was going through my mind. Um, you know, you, you've got this sort of normal-looking uh, football game uh, on a Saturday night, and I think I saw exactly one fan with a mask on, and you know, this this this. Not hit home yet. I'm sorry, I was interrupted by uh, my phone ringing. This has not hit home yet to people, um, and you've got you, so you've got really two things going on. You, you, we're, we're at an inflection point, obviously, and to me, this feels quite similar to, to that feeling we all had in some ways back in March of, of 2020. Um, you know, things are closing again. CNN announced that it's going to a very limited uh, back in the office scenario. And I'm sure that, you know, I'm not sure, but I suspect that our own, um, you know, newsroom uh, and operation at NBC might have some news on this. And, and I'm still working at home um, uh, as, as most of my colleagues are. Um, but, you know, you, you, you have alarm bells being sounded from many quarters, but it, it's not somehow carrying through yet to the public. Um, more people are wearing masks, I'm noticing. Um, but, you know, the other thing is, Ed, Ed Young, uh, the Atlantic science writer, brought up this point uh, last week and, and, and talked about it, that, you know, we are still in this mentality in this country that it's about me. It's the individual. I don't want to wear a mask or don't need to wear a mask when we need to think and the public needs to be really kind of recalibrated to think that I'm wearing that mask to protect you, to protect us uh, from this. And until we do that, you know, we're going to have this kind of endless cycle that John was talking about. We've been there before. We're seeing it again. We just don't learn. Um, you know, 30% of, of those eligible to get a booster have, have, have done so. That's a very low number still. So just a few thoughts from my corner. Thank you. Yeah, so, so I wanted to make sure that we talked about the UK really quick because I wanted to make sure that we actually go into Imperial College's data. So I, I pinned the link at the top uh, and it, uh, it has a link to the actual research itself. I did a deep dive. And if anybody wants to and then re-report it back, uh, please do. So what they did was at Imperial College uh, London, so just so, just so people know, I, I don't know if everybody knows what's going on in the UK. The UK, the COVID case in the UK soared past 90,000. Uh, uh, and it was the third consecutive day uh, where they had a record high. Uh, and the, the researchers from Imperial College London in their, in their actual research study said that there was no evidence that Omicron was actually milder than Delta. Now, just to be clear, this is, um, you know, this is casting doubt on the data that I was just talking about from South Africa, right? And just so everybody knows, if you're a public health official and you're sitting there and you've got the South African data and you've got this Imperial College London data, South Africa probably has one of the best data sets that's out there. So you can't discount just because it's in South Africa and it, it, it seems, you know, uh, you don't know how good their public health systems are. They're pretty good. And they're, they're pretty uh, diligent and you've got to give their public health people a lot of credit for the work that they've done recently. 
But Imperial College is pretty good too. And I don't see them making a lot of mistakes either. And so it's, it's fascinating that there's conflicting data. A lot of people have talked about the fact that this happened right after a surge in South Africa, what, just like John did. And he said, hey, they were at the highest possible position as a population with immunity. Even though they had low uh, vaccination rates, they had high immunity rates because there was infection mediated immunity. And so you have to take that and, into account. And but point, the data showed- Over 70% seropositive uh, sampling. So not, not hard science, but the projections were that they were 70% exposed to Delta when Omicron hit, and it was a recent exposure. You can't get any better than that in terms of naturally acquired. With, yeah. with, that hasn't faded. And, and the point here is that, you know, it looked like it was actively, uh, Omicron was actively displacing Delta um, in everywhere else. That does not seem to be the case. Delta just seems to be spreading exactly the way it was before the introduction of Omicron. So it's probably the case that Del you, they were actually hitting herd immunity, the herd immunity threshold for Delta in South Africa. And it was burning itself out just as uh, uh, Omicron started rolling through all of the people who were immune to Delta. Yeah. And so I wanted to, so thank you, uh, Anna Marie, for letting me know that that link was not working. This link is really good because it actually goes into the details. But um, what they found, and this is, again, conflicting to the data that we saw out of South Africa, is that the Omicron variant, the risk of reinfection from the Omicron variant is four it's five and a half times, nearly five and a half times greater than that of the Delta variant. That's, first of all, if that doesn't make sense, I'm happy to explain it. But what that means is that even if you had prior infection, you are five times more likely to get reinfected with Omicron than you would have been with Delta. That is kind of scary if you think about it. So, you know, people talk about natural immunity. Us, you know, what this means is that we're going to continue to see similar patterns with future uh, and that's an important point, which is some people are saying, well, Omicron's mild. Let me just get the infection and I'll never get another COVID infection again. What a great opportunity. It's actually not correct at all uh, for a variety of reasons. But one of them being that we're seeing that Omicron actually, whether you got Delta or whether you got any other type of COVID, you're actually five and a half, you know, you're, you're more likely to get reinfected with Omicron. And I, by the way, expect that to continue to occur. And so they looked at uh, you know, cases in the UK uh, where they had a COVID test between November 29th and December 11th, and uh, they had the Omicron infection uh, uh, because they were looking at the S gene target, SGTF, and they uh, uh, looked at 196,493 people without that gene and 11,329 people that actually uh, had that gene, meaning that they were likely to be infected with Omicron. And what they saw was the growth of Omicron, and they saw the reinfection rate of Omicron. They saw uh, the fact that Omicron, in terms of vaccine effectiveness, and uh, you know, uh, what they found was that actually being uh, the two shots actually did not provide, in, uh, you know, the the Omicron infection symptom uh, protection against symptomatic Omicron infection. Uh, 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 was zero to twenty percent, twenty percent on the high end after two doses. That's Imperial College London's data, and between fifty-five and eighty percent after. I'm, I'm just going to finish this, then we can kind of jump into the the interpretation of this. But between fifty-five percent and eighty percent after a booster dose. 
So that's an important point that boosters clearly improved, uh, uh, provided some level of protection. Uh, and if people have been listening to us for weeks, I said, I need to see the data. I need to see the data with the booster for me to start believing that this actually is true. And now we have the data that shows that between 55 and 80% protection in terms of symptomatic infection uh, with, uh, with the booster dose. But the thing that was important about this study that people have really uh, found is that for people that were not protected with booster doses, uh, there was significant hospitalization rate that was actually equivalent equivalent to the same point in the uh, uh, in the same in the in the delta wave that they saw in the UK, which was again you know when they looked at the severity they were looking at about 120,000 delta cases and 15,000 sus- uh, suspected omicron cases, uh, and what they found was that it, you can't actually make that judgment so easily. And so patients were getting hospitalized at similar rates and uh, uh, they were just as likely to show symptoms. Um, and again, yes, you can get uh, some protection from T-cell mediated immunity and B-cell mediated immunity from boosters. I have to say this data flew right in the face of the data that we saw from South Africa. And so but the, the, the qualification... A quick qualification on that is their numbers are still low, so they don't really have statistical certainty. And what they said was that they're expecting that to take. Yeah, and if I could add another um, layer of of, um, uh, data-driven analysis. Uh, There's a virologist in Hong Kong that published a a fascinating paper, and and it it helps account for uh, the um, clinical basis uh, and the the viral virologic basis of why we might see a much more contagious virus that might not still underline all caps might not be as virulent as uh, Delta we still don't know but what they showed is that the replication rate of the virus in the uh, upper airway essentially uh, is much much faster than any prior variant, but that the replication within the lung tissue itself is much, much lower than prior. So that would account for much higher replication and transmission. The uh, inoculum of virus in your exhaled breath, in your exhaust, is going to contain more viral particles, most likely based upon that thesis. And um, that will make uh, the exposure time and volume less in order to get infected um, than with previous variants. And yet it doesn't seem to have the tight linkage that we've seen previously between a big jump in contagion being associated with an equal or greater amount of uh, pathogenicity. So uh, you know, we need, and again, back to Danish's slice of the pie analysis, um, which I 100% agree with, uh, we need to be careful not to misinterpret that dissociation of contagiousness with um, uh, pathogenicity as something to uh, take take a, a sigh of relief and say, oh, th- this is going to be the one that converts us into an endemic from a pandemic and everybody's going to get immunity and we're done. It's just, it, there, there are way too many inputs and complexities and parameters that influence that that we do not have solid data points on yet. So um, we, we still need to wait. And for anybody who's wondering about their own personal behavior over the next week or two in the holidays, 
um, I would take this very seriously. Um, and, Just a and, question from and, a layman, and, John. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm struggling to follow all this as the non-scientist doctor on the stage here, but how would you describe the contagious aspect of Omicron versus other ailments, coronaviruses, colds, flus, measles? I mean, where does, where is it on the spectrum of of contagion? Yeah, sim simple answer. Uh, there there are uh, epidemiologists and virologists that are comparing it with measles right now. So it, previously, um, it was much less contagious than measles. It's now in the realm where people are seriously comparing it to measles. So this is, you know, which is which is uh, uh, sort of the uh, exemplar of extremely contagious viruses. This is an extremely contagious virus. John, can I and Dr. Donage, can I chime in for just a moment? Uh, David, before you go on, I wanted to give uh, some of the other physicians a chance to weigh in here. Catherine, Keisha, Angela, uh, if you if you guys have any additional comments to add around the South African data versus the UK data and how it's guiding your decision making, would love to hear from you. Thanks, Danish. I can tell you here I'm in the Chicago suburbs and we have seen a huge increase in COVID cases and my private practice, my emergency physician colleagues are telling me wait times to be seen are turning into almost a day, you know, six to eight hours just to see a patient holding patients for admitted hospital beds. Um, can be a 24 to 36 hour wait. So we're seeing some changes in how we might be booking elective surgeries at this time. That doubling rate of every day, significant impact in the context of everyone is gathering, going on on a need to know basis. It seems very few are boosted appropriately and I'm very concerned about the at risk because as we know, many of us are at risk even if you've been recently boosted, if you're elderly, you know, maybe that boost is giving you about 70% protection, not 100%. So appropriate masking is important, but my preference at this time is distancing because I expect everyone you know will have COVID by March. Uh, looks like it's gonna come sooner than later. So you wanna have as, a much, as much immune protection as you can uh, because it's just so contagious. Um, so keep that in mind. I personally, if you're sharing air with anyone indoors, I would prefer that they're vaccinated, boosted, and you do a rapid and or PCR test if it's a negative rapid to confirm as best as you can that your risk is as low as it can be. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, quick, 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 quick question. I just would like to, to uh, pose a follow up to, uh, to Catherine or anybody else. What about just everyday activities like going into a supermarket, like going into a big box store, that type of thing? We all have to do that. People are shopping for the for, for the for Christmas and so on and so forth. I'm curious what. So I would have things yeah. delivered if you can, or if you have to go out, wear a KN95 mask, avoid touching your face unless your hands have just been washed or sanitized. Um, I would have as many packages and you know gifts delivered and consider doing your shopping at a time when, if possible, the metrics of transmission in your community are low. And I don't know where that is right now in the North Northeast, certainly where you and I are, Edward, it's it's too much of a risk to me. I'm I'm not going into stores right now. Yeah, let me let me let me um, 
agree with everything Catherine just said and then add a couple of additional points. So I've mentioned a couple times um, in this forum that one of the things that's not widely discussed is when you're shopping and, you know, because the dissipation of the concentration um, of the virus in the air is a function of the inverse cube of the radius, meaning that it, it drops off quickly when you're not standing next to someone who's breathing, uh, who's, who's exhausting virus. Um, and they will be asymptomatic, most people will be asymptomatic with this virus and not even know they're, they're sick. So when you're going through a supermarket and you're passing people um, who are either obstructing, if you see a couple people obstructing an aisle, uh, uh, find a different way to get past them. Don't go past them, go around them if you can. Um, go when the store, as Catherine said, I always check parking lots. And if the parking lots are not near empty, I don't go in. And then the third thing is you can actually hold your breath for 20, 30 seconds and avoid really congested situations, whether at checkout or at a crowded uh, part of the store where you need to get something. But the the bigger issue to me is sort of a meta issue is uh, as Catherine also said, we're all going to get this thing. We're all going to get it. But what we want to do is we don't want to all get it in the next three weeks and overwhelm a hospital system that is about to collapse and overwhelm the capacity of people who get in a car accident to receive care or a heart attack. So it, it's not as if we can avoid getting this virus. We can delay um, when we get it, we can blunt the peak. We can wait for the availability of the Pfizer drug that Dan is going to get to later. That's a very effective therapy when given early. early. Um, but we 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 actually um, can do very well by uh, delaying and blunting this the spike of this thing. And and so what I would suggest is there are a lot of people out there who don't have the resources or live in a neighborhood where deliveries are not done. And so for people who must get out, we, 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 you know, for mental health or because they can't get deliveries because of the neighborhood they live in, we need to be careful not to shame them because they don't really have a psychological or a uh, logistical option of not shopping right now. But for those who can, it's in your best interest. It's in the best interest of your friends, your family, your, your loved ones, your community, especially during the cold uh, and flu season that we're in right now, where indoor activity and congregate activity of, you know, celebrating uh, family and friends is 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 peak. And so, these measures are not things that we can universally say everybody has to do because there are people who simply can't, and we need to be very sympathetic to those people who can't for either economic or psychological reasons. Uh, but for those who can please let's blunt the spike it is going to just devastate the healthcare delivery system that's already back on its heel yeah my concern is also not just those who can't but those who won't and you know there are a lot of people and i was in a store yesterday and you know again it's the half and half half are wearing masks half are not and they are just unaware of the 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 severity of of, of this and, and yeah so um, you know on it, it, it bears mentioning that, you know, in California, we, we have a mask mandate. Um, it, it does seem to be being observed more so than in the past. I did have to go into uh, um, a store yesterday and it was more crowded than I liked. But uh, contrary to past experience here in Los Angeles, um, there was pretty close to universal masking in the store. Oh, that's exciting. So I wanted to make sure that 
I gave uh, Dr. Keisha and uh, Dr. Angela Rearson uh, the opportunity to speak. Uh, and, and Angela. Yeah, so um, I'll say I've been getting a lot of uh, messages and calls from colleagues lately because they they know about the recent um, um, together trial and the positive findings for fluvoxamine for treatment of early COVID and they're asking me about appropriate dosing and so um, it might be you know reasonable to kind of just ask your physician whether they know Angela you're going in and out of the matrix I'm so sorry are, this is uh, something that they're willing to consider prescribing um, I am doing a room um, in about a half an hour yeah, so what, what Angela is speaking about, and Angela, I'm going to mute you for a second while you fix your uh, internet, is we, and Cheryl kind of alluded to it in the beginning, we do now have other options in terms of early treatment. Of course, you know, like any other physician, Angela is, is very much in favor of getting everybody boosted. There's a, now, again, you can, you can go back in replays and watch from two, three weeks ago when I sat here with John and Ellie, and I said, you know what? We need more data around boosters. I want to see more data around boosters. And now we have that data with Omicron in decent-sized studies. And uh, you know, uh, we should have gotten boosted for Delta. But to say that we were getting boosted for uh, for Omicron, now we have the data to go even further and say, hey, not only do we have the, we've always had the data. We've for a long time we've had data on Delta. And we should have been talking about Delta with the boosters. Now we can clearly talk about Delta and Omicron. So I want to be very clear about this. And so, you know, uh, sorry, Catherine, did you have a I, I also on want to add to this. We also have data on how well the monoclonal antibody therapies are holding up. Not terribly uh, reassuring data there, guys. So our early treatment options are even more limited. So fluvoxamine, I don't blame everyone asking Dr. Ryerson right now. We're kind of back at a place where we're just back to throwing spaghetti at the wall, see what's going to stick. Because even if you are in an area where you can get monoclonal antibodies, which most states are on allocation, most emergency departments are out of them, um, then you're going to be back to supportive care. If Pfizer's gets the EUA, which we expect them to, they only have, I think, 120,000 doses of their oral medication available to ship. That's enough for what? one day of new cases or pretty soon that'll be probably six hours of new cases so we really have to be thinking about prevention because the treatment options at this time in the pandemic are not looking as reassuring as you'd like them doctor thank you may I chime in here for a moment doctor? yeah go ahead david yeah so welcome to the great reset everybody as you know the thunderclap of great science you know comes shining through this room and so I just want to put a couple, pin a few things up, which is, um, so we need Biden to, to basically get the war. Let's talk about the defenses, these lines of defense that you're describing, Catherine. And let's start with, you know, the masks, right? Um, it, it sounds like, we don't know exactly if the new, if the, the new science on the cloud, the aerosol cloud of, 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 of this virus. We don't know that. We, we can see the numbers to know that it's going to be really ugly. But is are N95 sufficient? I mean, a couple of these are questions for, for Ellie and for, for uh, Dr. Madison, John. 
Um, it's time for the wartime act, not just for the masks, for N100 masks. I already went and bought some N100s. Thank you very much, Ellie. Um, but I, that's exactly what I was going to ask was with regards to the therapy supply. And, and so we need to, you know, everywhere in time to get the War Times Act or whatever they call it to, to get, get it moving. It sounds like now is a good time. And on the vaccine, I've got to come back to something that you've covered in this room a couple times, which was something that Fauci said with regards to whether we need a new vaccine. And I will tell you, and this is this, and we all, we, it's, it's almost like it's like unspoken yet, but a 55 to 80% efficacy in a booster is 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 not sufficient and and if if, if fauci is i'm sorry the public health leadership is important if fauci is still on the fence that 55 to 80 percent is sufficient and it's it is not willing to put the gas through the the metal on on the next um vaccine 2.0 if you will then we need a change of leadership and it's it's, it's, it's it's a it's a chess game right there there's there's the science and then there's the public health management of it and i i've, I've been waiting just like just like you had said dr donna it's like we're waiting on the data um but that's something that that is not a sufficient uh protection 55 to 80 percent so so before and i'm not i'm not going to bring up any of my my points with regards to the behavioral science and the cha- how do how are we going to change uh, on the behavioral science perspective until we kind of turn the page from these, 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 uh, these, uh, the security, uh, uh, levels of security that I just mentioned, but I do want to chime in on the, on how, how are we going to pivot from behavioral perspective? I have a few th- thoughts on that that I'll share. Uh, in, in... Yeah, we're, we're deep in the realm of inconvenient truths and the inconvenient truth is, um, that, uh, 90% of us on this call, are, will be exposed to Omicron in a, in a big way uh, in the next 100 days, which is when, you know, uh, scaled production of an Omicron-specific vaccine will start from, you know, pick, pick a vaccine manufacturer, Pfizer, J&J, um, Moderna, AstraZeneca. They, you know, any CEO of a vaccine manufacturing firm um, is going to be very interested in having something that's Omicron-specific. So um, why, why would... Fauci say um, we may not need it. I think that's the wrong term. We we may not be able to use it in time for this variant. But the second inconvenient truth is that when we have a base of billions of people experiencing this Omicron virus nearly simultaneously, we we're going to see new mutations. Uh, uh, th- there are mutations every single day. Um, there there are millions of mutations that have occurred in this virus. Most of them are not transmissible or they're not viable, but uh, you know, out of billions of mutations, there are a few that emerge that uh, like Omicron are more contagious and, and have legs and, and they displace the, the prior variant. So now that we're into Omicron with over 50 mutations overall, over 30 on the spike protein, over 10 or more on the receptor binding domain, which is how the virus attaches to cells and gains access, um, it, it's, it's kind of implausible to think with such a significant departure in this clade of viruses that Omicron represents, that it won't lead to more variants that might well have uh, the ability to eventually overcome um, the immunity uh, from an Omicron infection or from a Delta uh, or from an original variant targeted vaccine. So I think we do need to support 
the pharmaceutical biotech industry in developing Omicron specific variants, not necessarily for Omicron, but for what may emerge after that, because we're seeing the vaccines developed against the original virus, strain of virus not working against Omicron. And so Omicron descendants are likely to enjoy that same ability to override the existing vaccine. So I, I think it was an unfortunate choice of words at an unfortunate time, but, uh, but fortunately, I don't think it's gonna have a big impact. I think pharmaceutical CEOs and biotech CEOs know that there's a high probability that an Omicron specific vaccine will be quite valuable for public health uh, post this wave of, of Omicron. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that Omicron signals the transition from pandemic to endemic. There's still a chance that that'll happen. There's still a chance that that'll happen and we could be out of this thing by the end of spring, but I'm not banking on it. I, I agree with everything. Hey, Don, but... I gotta quickly comment on what you said, Mrs. Chandler. I, I think you're right about the descendant thing. Like if you look at the original and the alpha, the beta, the delta and the lambda, there's like a descendant there because of the uh, sequences, but then you have this Omicron, which is kind of like a completely different sequence. And so I think that's the challenge. And then from my readings, it takes up to three months to get an Omicron specific vaccine. And the challenge is, like you said, we're gonna be exposed to this. So, but I, I like how you explained that. Back to you. Uh so if if I can respond to a couple of things, um, they're all now this is just Twitter, but it's immunologists I respect on Twitter uh, and virologists. Um, there appear to be actually distinct uh, sub lineages of alpha of, of Omicron already forming. So uh, that's going to be many, many. Yeah, there are many, many uh, already. But but antigenically distinct. Uh, yeah. So that's going to yes, be that's going to be a, an additional complication. Um, but uh, so I want so, to so Ellie for the general audience. I need to make sure that people understand. Can you explain the significance of this? Okay. Please? So um, when when we say antigenically distinct, that means that uh, uh, it's going to be a different pattern of recognition by antibodies. So like going back to uh, the way that the monoclonals uh, aren't as effective against Omicron, and, and that can be by factors of 20 to factors of 100 uh, on the, the um, dilution that's necessary, the lower dilution that's necessary to neutralize, right? Um, and it, I saw the, those data, it's really disappointing. Only one of the monoclonals is even marginally effective at any reasonable dose. Um, but uh, so I wanted to co-sign everything uh, John said, except for the endemic part. I, I really think that uh, uh, endemicity as a solution is a mirage anytime soon. Um, but uh, the other points that I wanted to to make is that uh, uh, it can do all kinds of things to evade immunity and host responses. Uh, but there are real hard constraints on what the virus can do to change its size and shape. Uh, and uh, um, uh, evade masks. So, so masks are uh, are really the most reliable thing we've got against new variants, and they're also more effective when used properly and widely. Uh, so, universal high quality masks would be the number one thing that we could do. Uh, to save ourselves. And going back to the point that, that uh, John was making about exponential spread with, with a two-day uh, doubling time, Delta had a doubling time of about two weeks, right? So uh, in, in, in 14 days, 
delta would only have gone up by a factor of four in 14 days uh, omicron goes up by a factor of 128 right that's the difference and ellie if i could if i could just respond to the distinction you're making about when we transition to um endemic um you and I have disagreed about that. In the, it's the only thing we found to disagree on. So, by the way, follow Ellie. He's the best. Um, but uh, the only thing we disagreed on in the past. Uh, now that Omicron has reset the game by providing a whole new platform for mutation, I'm resetting my expectations about how soon it's going to happen. So if I didn't imply that in my earlier comments, let me say I agree with you 100% as a consequence of Omicron that we have to reset the clock and when we're going to pass into endemicity from the pandemicity. So um, you were right. I was wrong about when it would happen. And Omicron is what made the difference in, in, in my mind. To be clear. I, I wish I weren't like, right. I guys, really wish I Yeah. So, so the, the, to make sure that everybody else understands what we're talking about and the difference here, one of them has to do with the fact that the pandemic uh, uh, versus endemic. So. Uh, uh, Ali, if you can explain the difference between those two uh, so that everybody else can understand. But, it, you know, it, I, I'm, I'm happy to do it as well, whatever you'd like. Uh, I think I'll let John, just, uh, um, because he's the proponent. Yeah, go ahead, John. Why don't you explain what your original thought process was? And let's keep it really short, because I want to give other people a chance to, to weigh in as well. Specifically about yeah, the, difference, the, the past. So, so why we, you know, so the, the, the thought process was Omicron will get everybody at some, I'll just do it. It's not a big deal. You know, so my point was that ultimately the, the, the thought process here was that we would just live with COVID and it would be like one of the more common colds and that perhaps with Omicron being so much more transmissible uh, than prior variants. And again, there was an underlying assumption there that John was saying that he was hoping for, which was less severe, less long COVID. It just becomes endemic. It helps transition us away from this pandemic situation where we have a deadly virus that can get us hospitalized, that can kill us, and that can actually give us long COVID. And by the way, I just want to be very, very clear. We still don't have data on long COVID by definition. <laughs> we still don't know. And I know that people think that we, it's so, I was, I was messaging this to somebody earlier. It's so frustrating right now. I know we're tired. I mean, I was just talking about how doctors are quitting their jobs. We're all tired, trust me. Uh, we're all ready for this to be over. No, no one more than I think the physicians on the front lines and the people that are taking care of patients, the mental health experts that are taking care of the side effects of this pandemic that are not being talked about, the hidden crises. And everybody's tired. But you can't, you know who's not tired, clearly? COVID. The coronavirus is not tired. It's only getting stronger. Uh, and it's getting stronger in terms of the thing that allows it to infect the most people possible. So what John and Ellie and myself, actually, we were all sort of disagreeing on, uh, but uh, we're discussing in an academic set, uh, mindset is, is Omicron going to be the, the the shot that gets fired that says, okay, this is the transition from a deadly, severe virus to a virus that's just like one of the other common colds? And clearly, yeah, could I, I'm sorry, sorry, John, go ahead. No, I, I, if I could just bring an, an, another um, uh, sort of element of 
the the hypothetical scientific underpinning of when we might see the transition from uh, pandemic to epidemic. So if so, as soon as Omicron emerged and I saw the sequence of Omicron, it was like, oh my, oh my God, I'm resetting my clock. Ellie was right; it's not going to happen at the end of the spring. It's still possible, but it's less likely. And the reason for that is that if Omicron had one or two mutations above and beyond Delta that made it this much more contagious, I would say, wow, this may be the one. But because Omicron had those 50 mutations, the chances that it's going to have uh, experiments uh, of nature with random mutations, one of which may be even more contagious or as contagious um, and continue the next round and the next spike is much higher because you've got a whole new base for innovation and mutation to create a new variant that could continue this cycle of new variants overcoming the, the last. Um, so if it had only been one or two mutations, it would be much higher probability. So what we're, look, what we're looking for in terms of this transition is not necessarily, it was definitely not something that looks like Omicron where there's 50 mutations. We're looking for something that's got one or two mutations that is so uh, uh, conspicuously um, and and uh, effectively contagious that we get natural immunity without without killing people. The other piece is, um, the second half of the statement, we don't need an Omicron-specific vaccine that's being made, is we need a, a broader base uh, vaccine. And the broader base vaccine would provide, so all of the vaccine manufacturers have target essentially various parts of the spike protein, because the spike is what attaches to cells and it's what antibodies can neutralize the virus with. There are lots of other proteins in the cell, like the one that Pfizer targeted with their antiviral. It's an enzyme that is necessary for replication. but you can't attach an antibody to a, an enzyme that sits inside the protective core of the virus. You, do you get antibodies to natural infection? Them? To some extent, yes, because the debris leaks out and antibodies are formed to novel antigens. But the point here is that if we developed broad-based vaccines that also include antibodies against some of the proteins that are hidden by the nucleocapsid of the, you know, the sort of the envelope around the virus, um, they're not going to generate the kinds of antibodies that intercept and neutralize the antibody before it penetrates the cell. And so it's not going to be all that helpful. So the vaccines that, that cover a broad array of antigens emerging from a broad array of epitopes in, in the nucleic acid structure of those um, uh, proteins that are exposed um, during an infection and that antibodies can respond to quickly to neutralize it before it invades numerous cells and replicates rapidly. Um, that kind of prostate is, is, is difficult because those antigens are not exposed. So the, the, the statement, we may not need an Omicron specific comma, pause, we need a generic vaccine. A generic vaccine, when we're seeing the kind of mutations with Omicron, or 30 mutations in the spike protein, um, is challenging. Uh, we will get there. We will pass an endemicity at some point. Um, still a small chance that Omicron will be the one that delivers us um, from the pandemic, but it's less likely than if we got something that's just a few muta mutations away from its predecessor, not, not such a significant departure as this one in those proteins that are accessible to antibodies. Yeah. So, so, so got a few points on this. Um, Eric Topol uh, um, had uh, been been lauding uh, uh, some work on uh, targeting a different part of the spike protein towards uh, a pan coronavirus uh, vaccine, and it looks promising. But I, but there's still a way to go on that. 
But the thing is, if we are so lucky that we have a pan-coronavirus uh, vaccine that's safe and effective, right? We can't make the mistake that we made before, uh, the multiple mistakes of uh, saying, okay, uh, everybody can take their masks off and, and, and go out and, and, and play and, and, and uh, put it all behind us right away. Um, and also, uh, we have to not, you know, just do it in one place. We have to do it everywhere. It has to be rolled out quickly all around the world. Uh, because if we fail at either of those two things, we are giving the, the, the virus the chance to get into somebody who's immunocompromised and generate, you know, whole suites of mutations uh, to try and get past that, quote, pan-corona vaccine, because it will only be specific to what we have now. It can't be specific to those future mutations. Yeah, so just want to make sure that we move on, guys. Real quick is, you know, that's the, that's the reason we have the flu shot is protein-based. And every year you have two or three variants. And so that's one of the limitations of the mRNA vaccine. In theory, if there was a protein-based COVID vaccine, you could have like the Delta and the Omicron and the different variants. But, you know, I think Nanovax is the only one that's working on that. Uh, John yeah, and they've, you know, Chandler, you're right. That's correct. And uh, Novavax. Uh, but Novavax has also uh, struggled. Their data against Delta was not great. Uh, that was maybe a couple of months ago. Maybe somebody can uh, correct me on this. But their data against Delta was not great because they actually didn't test well against Delta. So uh, yeah, and I, protein I, based. I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's still um, a certain amount of public confusion ab about you know, how viruses replicate are made. So they've, in this case, it's RNA or as opposed to a DNA virus, it's RNA um, is transcribed into a protein, which is uh, then exposed uh, on the surface of cells that are infected and in the bloodstream when the virus is circulating freely. Um, and so DNA vaccines um, that are, you know, adenovirus carriers for DNA vaccines in many cases, uh, uh, inject the DNA, that then is, goes inside cells, is translated into RNA, translated proteins. The RNA vaccines just translate from RNA into proteins, and the protein vaccines, you just get the protein itself. So in every case, the final common pathway is through proteins that stimulate antibodies and T cells to attack those proteins and recognize them as foreign and have a little army in reserve to to uh, replicate very quickly the T cell uh, and B cell replication when exposed to that agent after a vaccination. So whether we give a DNA vaccine, an RNA vaccine, or a protein vaccine, our immune system is responding predominantly, um, uh, vast, overwhelmingly to the protein final exactly. product. So it 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 isn't really specific to whether you give a protein or uh, an RNA or a DNA vaccine, it's it's more about getting to the the sufficient amount of protein antigens, that is the confirmations on the exterior of the proteins that the antibodies and the T cells can recognize and, the, and that closely resemble um, the actual native virus. And one of the fascinating things about the mRNA technology development is that they didn't just take the sequence of, of 
uh, DNA and, and uh, RNA and proteins and look at what the direct protein would look like, but they're looking at different conformations of that protein as it binds cells and so forth and targeting uh, those kind of conformations. So it gets very, very, very complicated. So yeah, I was going to say, I was like, a lot of, a lot of this, all of that. But a I, lot I of this, that John, a lot of this is trial is, and error. And that's you, why we, Chandler, that's why yeah, we need I think so John, many the problem is if, if you have to make a vaccine, you have to decide whether to pick an Omicron or Delta as the base, as the blueprint. But if you had a protein-based COVID, you can get them both because that's what you do with the flu vaccine protein-based. That's the issue. The Delta variant and the mRNA. The mRNA is the limitation for the vaccine because you have to pick either the uh, Omicron or the Delta as a blueprint. We're, we're only a year into the, the, you know, the first widespread use of an RNA-based, uh, mRNA-based vaccine. There is nothing that precludes putting mRNAs that result in proteins seen in different variants into the same vehicle of a vaccine. So yeah. you're correct. To date, they've been monotonic per variant. Uh, there's 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 nothing theoretically excluding that same technology to be used for multiple mRNAs in the same delivery vehicle in a vaccine. All right. So the, the, I just want to make sure that the one... uh, Ellie, I'm just going to kind of summarize and I want to move forward because we have only eight minutes left. I want everybody in this room to go and learn more about other treatment options that are out there, because one of the things I wanted to bring up that the, the, the TLDR or the, the overall message here is, should be very clear. The data has consistently showed something really important, which is that being fully vaccinated in the traditional sense, which is two shot series of mRNA vaccines, does not provide the type of protection that would make you feel comfortable. If I know our audience, they want more protection than zero to 20% based on Imperial College London data, and even lower based on the data from South Africa. So we know that the boosters now from this data show that they provide good protection. What we also know is that what we've seen with uh, the Omicron variant is a huge shift away from the Delta. It is not like AY4 or any of the other ones that were essentially, you know, uh, uh, maybe a few mutations away. This is a whole new ball game. And so what that means is that we can't, uh, we can't really rely on infection-mediated immunity, what is, has been affectionately called natural immunity, to help solve this problem. Because there will likely, based on this big shift, there will likely be another virus, another uh, variant, and another variant. And again, there's a high risk now that there will be another variant that will be that even if you've gotten Omicron, you might get reinfected again. What we do know is that the vaccines reduce hospitalizations and deaths. What we don't know is one, and that sometimes what we don't know is more important than what we do know. What we don't know is what are the rates of long COVID with Omicron? Anybody that tells you anything uh, about that, just be like, that's not even possible. It's not even been six weeks. Shut up, Uncle Jimmy. <laughs> you know, like we don't even know that data yet. Like, and, and so I want to make sure that our audience, the most educated audience on Clubhouse, the, the, the best looking one too, I, I will say, you got to say this to people. When people are saying this to you, that is misinformation. The, the definition of long COVID 
depending on who you listen to, is four to six weeks. Usually six weeks is now more officially the definition of long COVID. Symptoms that persist past six weeks. And so what I want to make clear is we do not have the data on long COVID. And I'm hopeful. I am so hopeful. If you've ever taken care of a patient with long COVID or been, you know, talk to Dr. Alice, who's a physician with long COVID, or, or talk to Katie, who joins our, our, our stages all the time, the impact that long COVID has on people's lives cannot be overstated. It, is, uh, an ap- it can be absolutely debilitating. So I want to make sure that everybody knows the big, big points here. The big points are that, one, we, there is a lot of talk around a pan-COVID vaccine on the horizon. We're still not sure about the mechanism that we'll be able to actually execute on that. There are some protein vaccines like Novavax that Chandler mentioned that uh, have some promise, but early data has not been as exciting as what was hoped. And so I wanted to use this now as a transition into the next room. But before that, I wanted to mention one piece of news that I've linked and we haven't been able to get to, which was around Pfizer's new pill. And Pfizer's new pill, uh, uh, Plaxovid or Paxlovid, sorry, uh, it has now been approved for, uh, by, in, in Europe by EMA. Uh, and it's a clearance, specifically, just to be clear, sorry. It's a clearance. Uh, and it's because of what Catherine was saying earlier. So, you know, Catherine was mentioning, it's really concerning that the monoclonal antibodies are not super effective against, uh, against uh, Omicron. It's actually more concerning than you, you may imagine. That was our, you know, one of our first lines of defense that really worked so well. And now they don't. So we we're seeing our rush to get a lot of these medications out uh, that are safe and effective and actually affect something that we haven't talked much about yet. And I want to make sure that we you know discuss it before we move to Angela's room, which is around replication or I'm sorry, uh, spike protein independent mechanisms that of attack. So one of the things around uh, the medication approach with Merck and Pfizer and even fluvoxamine is that they're actually not going after the spike protein. So as the spike protein continues to mutate, the replication machinery and other aspects of it are not mutating as much because there's no, um, th- there isn't this impetus Select- to change. That is selective pressure. Thank you. And so, you know, we're, we're not seeing this mutation. And so what's exciting about these medications is that we are actually, we're actually seeing potentially some very, very promising results. And Angela, you know, uh, I wanted to talk about Paxlovid for one minute, and then we're going to transition to fluoxamine. And then everybody in this room, hopefully, will join you in virtual grand rounds. And just so people know, virtual grand rounds is a little bit more, uh, uh, you're going to get to hear all the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you get to hear the doctors talk about it. You get to see it on our stages as well, but we try to keep it to a broader audience. We're going to try to do that today, right, Angela? We're going to try to keep it broad so that people can actually understand. But the key here is now we have some early COVID treatments that are safe, effective, safe and effective. Some There's been some that have been talked about that are decently safe, but not so effective. But these are safe and effective. They, are, they include uh, molnupiravir, Paxlovid, and fluvoxamine. There's some early data. Now, I will say that with uh, molnupiravir and Paxlovid, there's actually data against Omicron specifically. And this data around Paxlovid showed that, uh, so, you know, they, they originally showed that 90% effective in preventing hospitalizations. And uh, what's really exciting is that this week, Pfizer, according to, this, uh, uh, to Reuters, and I haven't seen the original data myself out of a disclaimer, but uh, they showed that it retained its effectiveness even with Omicron. 
90% effective for people that are high risk in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, that's very encouraging. I've got to tell you, that's very, very encouraging. And I think, you know, vaccines, of course, are one line of defense. Mask, masking is another line of defense. But once somebody does get COVID, having early treatments is really exciting. So Angela, I wanted to give you a minute here to kind of tell us a little bit about what you're going to be talking about in your room today. And then we'll close out this room and we'll all end up in yours. All right. So, um, yeah, this is Dr. Angela Rarison, and um, I'm the one of the principal investigators on the STOP COVID trials, which looked at fluvoxamine for treatment of early COVID-19 in outpatients. And um, in addition to our trials, there was also the TOGETHER trial, which recently had findings that were positive in terms of uh, fluvoxamine reducing hospitalizations. Um, and so we're going to talk about this in the next room in the virtual grand rounds. And I'm going to have some physicians up there who have had some experience working with this drug. And we're going to allow um, doctors and scientists to come up and ask questions. And then others, if, if they are not um, physicians or scientists, can ask questions via the back channel. And so this should be an interesting room. We have a nice panel um, and I hope everybody can come. That's great. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be going to that room now. I appreciate everybody that showed up today. This has been an incredibly informative room, at least for me. I always learn so much. And, you know, Prerock and I can't thank you enough for your support week after week. Uh, we're going to continue to build. If you guys are interested in supporting what we're doing, reach out in the back channels, on Twitter. Uh, we're probably going to have a website soon. And we're starting to build a community uh, and we're really excited about it. So please join our community. Uh, you know, click on Prerax profile, go to his Twitter, join Health New CA so you can keep up with all the updates that we're making. This has been incredible and, and we love you all. Have a safe, safe week. We'll see. Thanks, Dr. Great job, guys. Keep up the great. Thanks, guys. Happy Christmas week. Thank you, Mary. Happy holidays. Be safe. Happy Christmas week. Be, Be safe, safe, everyone. <clears throat>